This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. Let's see here. Who am I worthless that you spent such pains and take may pains again? I do not understand, but I believe. John Quills respond with wit to the teasing breeze. Induct me down my secrets, stiffen this heart to stand their horrifying cries. Oh, cushion the first, the second shocks. Will to a halt in midair there, demons who would be at me. May fade before. Sweet morning on sweet morning, I wake my dreams, my fan mail go astray, and do me little goods I have not thought of, ingenious and beneficial father. Ease in their passing, my beloved friends, all others too, I have cared for in a traveling life, anyone, anywhere indeed. Lift up sober, sober toward truth, a scared self-estimate. So I just needed to get that out of my system. So <laughs> in a traveling life, Brad. Yeah, so that's yeah. John Berryman. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subject of our episode today, late in life, that's number eight from a, from a, a, a series of poems called 11 Addresses to the Lord. It's a poem that was read at his funeral, one amongst many or several, at least. Uh, I just want to lay that. I just want to throw that out there. And it takes it takes Berryman a long time to get to that poem and other poems. And we're going to we're going to kind of go through it. So uh, welcome back to Art of Darkness. Uh, talking John Berryman, great American poet. We have with us a very special guest, Jason Gallagher. Uh, Mr. Gallagher, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem, Brad. It's a pleasure. Thank you for letting me talk about one of my favorite mid-century American poets. Okay, okay. It's going to be good. And we've got got the man to do it. So, um, Jason, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, your relationship to poetry, you know, for people who don't know you. Sure. Um, I was born in Springfield, Illinois, and uh, grew up in a working class uh, family there. I was uh, moved to study drama, in which, uh, you know, Kevin can appreciate when I was an undergrad. One I have of a- us. One of us. <laughs> one of us. One of us. Why, though? <laughs> why? Why would you? Why would a working class kid? Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna, yeah. Go on. I fell in love with performance as a kid, so I thought I wanted to be an actor, but then I realized I didn't have enough talent. So then I was like, oh, I'll write plays instead because that's... Oh, no. Just, yeah, that's just <laughs> exciting. The greatest um, mistake you can ever make. That's, you've got that right. <laughs> no, it, well, no it's I, fine, man. Yeah, when yeah. I was working in undergrad, um, I was writing my plays, but I fell in love with poetry. And I had mm. uh, I had a special uh, mentor who really sort of fostered that. And I sort of bombed around in um, a whole bunch of different jobs. 
doing everything from selling fish to working as a um, online stock boy for an online retailer. Um, but I also ended up getting my master's in English from the University of Nebraska, focusing on um, Native American and mid-century American poets, and particularly poets that have connections to the Midwest, since, uh, you know, I'm a Midwesterner, and Berryman falls under that, as we'll see in a second. And um, just got really interested, particularly into the mid-20th century and what was going on with American poetry at that time. Uh, moved to New York because I thought that's where a poet was supposed to live. It's probably the worst um, decision that I ever made. Uh, Terrible. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Oh, I've been there, bro. Yeah, 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 I, know, yeah, yeah. I know you have. That's what I'm um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so right. it was... It was, I lived there for, let's see, going on about eight years. The pandemic sort of really threw a wrench into a lot of stuff. My wife ended up losing her job. I moved online for my teaching and we were paying way too much in rent for not enough dividends with my work. And I said, let's move back to St. Louis. So at the beginning, yep, at the beginning of the pandemic, my wife and I came back to the Midwest and we've been here exactly two years strong okay. this week. So lots of exciting stuff. I was also one of the, when I was in New York, I was one of the last contributing editors to the Evergreen Review, which was Barney Rossett's avant-garde poetry. That's, yeah. That's a great, that was a, I don't know the status of it now, but that I, in its heyday for sure was a great journey. I actually have a coffee table book uh, of, I'm not sure when the last one is, but it's a f- juicy big coffee table book of like the best of evergreen review from this i think the 60s and 70s i believe so yeah so yeah, in great journal sort of that you know out there avant-garde poetry and and in plays as well beckett and uh ionesco were friends oh, of nice. barney rossett so there was a lot of overlap with my interests in doing that and then it closed after I was done being contributing editor. So you can you can guess whatever that means. <laughs> hey, hey, you you hit the heights, man. They, they, they were, there's nothing we can't go up from here. So um, that's right. That's yeah. absolutely true. So that's sort of my experience. I've been published in like a bunch of places. Right now, I'm working on a book length poem about St. Louis that should be done in about a year and a half into oh, the cool. press. So that's sort of where I am right now. I had to leave the bird website, which is where I found the two of you yeah. because it was, it was killing me. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm, same I'm, here, man. Same here. Yeah, but, man. uh, it's like almost a job now. I can't, yeah. I, don't, I can't walk away. So loop to loop. I mean, it's that's, just, yeah, it's awful. <laughs> oh, oh. And then last but not least to sort of do the trifecta of mm-hmm. inside jokes on this podcast. I'm also a member of the one true faith. Oh, you are. Oh, okay. oh, yes. See, we got three Midwestern Catholic boys. Hit it. Hogging John Berryman. <laughs> I was texting Kevin. So, hey, well, that's all right. I was texting Kevin earlier. I was like, this is the closest episode we've had to doing one of us, actually. So, <laughs> yeah. So, well, so Wait, that leads he, he, okay. That go. leads us into the because uh, the the classic question, Kevin. What do you know about John Berryman? Not a thing. I don't know anything. Okay. I don't. Okay. I, I all I know is what you've told me. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I've been trying not to tell you too much. But, no, I know Minnesota, yeah. my alma mater, rah rah, Skyuma. Let's go mm-hmm. all day. You know, uh, I don't. I, I you know, I've never read him. Okay. I, you know, I worked at a bookstore down by the U. Uh, right. 
but you know, I know the name. Gosh, you know, you that's... probably had a professor who knew him personally. I bet. Of course. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's like it's like he's he's like a that name is like a like a humming in the background. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's what he was for me too. I mean, remember the poets in our when in our MFA program we talk about oh John Berryman, John Berryman, and, and I, I just never read him. You know, that, no excuses. Just kind of never got around to it, to be honest. And and so. Uh, well, we're going to get into it because now I, I, I know a lot about John Berryman now. <laughs> uh, I've learned a lot in the last six weeks or so. So we're going to, we're going to no, jump listen, in. Listen, it, here's, here's the thing. I'm going to be candid with you. Mm-hmm. It's the name is too Anglo for it's me. It's pretty Anglo. It's a little Anglo. This is what, so gonna, this is what just, we're going to learn I, though. I tune it out. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, bear yeah, with yeah. me. This is actually yeah, the yeah, name yeah. itself is part of the story. So, okay. Awesome. So let's, we'll just nope. start at the beginning. October 25th, 1914. Now I've never done this on an art of darkness, but I looked up, I, I was interested. What is this guy's astrological sign? He's a Scorpio. Scorpios are known for being bold, determined, mystical, passionate, and the area of the body for the, for the Scorpio is the genitals. Which for Berryman, you know, say what you want about astrology. It, maybe it's just luck of the draw. This dude is a Scorpio, <laughs> based on based on those those parameters, right? Um, but when it came to the area of the bodies, the genitals, I started cracking up. Um, <laughs> so he's born in October twenty fifth, nineteen fourteen, McAllister, Oklahoma, which is the largest city in the Choctaw Nation, and. By the time he ends, you know, his life comes to an end, he would end up at at a period of time in Cambridge and Harvard, Princeton, Columbia. He would go to India, Japan. He would be in uh, uh, Dublin for a period of time all over the United States, Iowa, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Detroit, you name it. Um, And before finally settling uh, as much as John Berryman ever really settled in Minnesota. Um, uh, Minnesota. Yeah. The greatest state in America. <laughs> yeah. Land of the free. Sure. Yeah, no, it, it's a good, it's a good place. Yeah. I actually, it's I funny, s- man. I don't, I've never, I have really standing been there. there. I've driven no. through the corner of it, but I'm going to come we're see gonna, you. We're going to do it. We're going to do when we do art of darkness live, I'm, you're going to come out. I'll be yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. We're going to do the, the Fitzgerald episode. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be great. Yeah, gonna, we we could have done Berryman if we hadn't thought of Fitzgerald. Seriously. Well, that's Fair okay. Enough. We're doing it now. It's going to be great. Hey, so there you go. <laughs> okay. So uh, the first thing to, one of the first things to know about John Berryman is he's not a Berryman. That is not his name. Nobody he's related to is named Berryman. Okay. So uh, this is the name of his mother's second husband, whose name was also John Berryman, but he's not John Berryman senior. So um, John Berryman, our John Berryman, his father was named John Allen Smith, and that was John. Our John Berryman's first name was John Allen Smith Jr. Um, John Allen Smith Sr. is the son of a, of a Civil War veteran. Uh, so, so our John Berryman's grandfather had his femur shattered by a ball in the Battle of the Wilderness, uh, uh, fighting <laughs> under Ulysses S. Grant. So, this is the historical Whoa. trying to kind of set us where we're yeah. at historically. Whoa, right? doggy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oof. Um, yeah. And then John Sr. Our Berryman's dad, uh, you know, grew up uh, the son of John Allen. Uh, I guess he wasn't John. So anyway, the, the Smith grandfather and um, an Irish immigrant um, and grew up in uh, 
John Sr., John Berryman's father. The names are getting me confused here. <laughs> John Berryman, our John Berryman's father grew up in Stillwater, Minnesota. Stillwater, Minnesota. That is, yeah. you know, my my first wife uh, is from there, like mm-hmm. an ancient family in Stillwater. Uh, Sam Shepard lived mm-hmm. in Stillwater with uh, Jessica Lang. It's a beautiful town. Like, mm-hmm. Nothing but respect, for, and it's, for still it's not water. far from. I don't know if it's Minneapolis. Metro, no, it's about yeah, it's, yeah. It's about it's about thirty minutes away. Okay, from okay. 20, 30 minutes away from St. Paul. It's it's like the first uh, city in uh, Minnesota. Oh, it's right okay. on the the uh, what is it? Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the river, but it's it's right over the uh, the river between okay. uh, you know Minnesota and uh, Wisconsin. Okay, if you so- if you drive if you drive further east, you're you know. You're in a keg. <laughs> <laughs> you're in, oh, you're in Wisconsin. You're in Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got yeah. that joke. Okay. Well, you know, I, uh, <laughs> Brian. I mean, you know, it's no, it, it gets pretty real. I mean, like yeah. we used to, you know, people would talk about, you know, you just drive over. What is yeah. the name of that river? Oh, the the Saint Croix. The Saint Croix. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So you know this area well. So this is where his. his yes, this I is do. Where this is where John Berryman's father grows up. John Berryman. Mm. Our John Berryman is actually born in Oklahoma. And the story of how that works is his father followed his. He'd been working in a like a lumber yard, and his older brother, which would be John Berryman's uncle, went to Oklahoma to work for a bank. So John Berry, uh, John Senior, follows the brother. They work in this bank in Oklahoma. Then his brother embezzles a bunch of money and disappears forever. So our John Berryman's father wasn't embezzling apparently, but you know, he's the brother of all this. He goes and he works for like a, 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 a bank out in the hills and he meets Martha Little, who will be uh, John Berryman's mother. Um, they, uh, wait, wait, wait. So we have, we have like fraud in the family, like oh, you know, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. previous generation. Oh yeah. That yeah. rocks. The uncle, That's the American uh, way. Right. I mean, right. like, you know, let's just, let's And then go. you're kind of out, you're kind of out running that, you know? Like, yeah. 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 And, yeah. And this is, this is the point of, you know, different episodes, we do varying degrees of like genealogical stuff. I thought it was pretty important here because you can kind of feel John Berryman, like emerging from the plains almost you know he's sort of like and now we've got this this figure um and and he's he's not a guy you know jason and I, jason mentioned this when we were talking he's not a guy of privilege we've covered people of privilege john berryman is not a man of privilege his mother one would, of us yeah, his, one of us his, his mother yeah. would manage to do pretty well for herself but there's no I mean, there's no money coming in. There's no like, you know, there's nothing. If if you lose your job, no one's coming to help you. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So you're on you're on the floor immediately. Right. right. Like you're just you right. have to, you know, yeah, move. So skip might, town. If you can yeah. pull some stuff together, good for you. But yeah, no, no, you know, nobody's really on your side. And John Berryman, our John Berryman, is born in 1914, right? So the Great Depression hasn't happened yet, but it's it's coming, right? So um when he's nine, our John Berryman, they moved to Florida. Uh, there's different explanations as to why, you know, there's supposedly uh, John Sr. got fired because he didn't go on. A, he didn't. He refused to give up a fishing trip he was going on, which is probably a lie that Martha made up. Honestly, uh, she was not was we'll see. She was she's not the best human being ever. And in fact, we're going to talk more in depth about her and something she might have done in the after dark. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and it's wor- it's worth it. Trust me. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Dark Pod. Yeah, for true go. crime for true crime fans. If you if you listen to my favorite murder, this is gonna be a good after dark for you. Um nice. Oh no. <laughs> they went to they went to Florida and did crime. That's <laughs> so they go to so yeah, they go down to Florida. There's a land boom going on in Florida at the time, right? So mm. there's people like it's a gold, it's a little mini gold rush, you know. It might be like moving to Miami and starting uh, a crypto startup now or something like that. Uh <laughs> I don't know. Is that what people do in my? What are they all doing in Miami? Something like that. Nobody's <laughs> nobody in Miami works. <laughs> I was there in January. Nobody works. Nobody Trust works. Me. Hey man, that's a good sign. I think. All right. Um. Oh, here's a, here's the thing. Here's another reason they might have moved to Florida. Martha Little claims that she had an affair with a man who would become the governor of Oklahoma. And at one point, she says in a letter, "Is the only man that she ever actually loved." Right. So it's possible she was having an affair with this guy who, again, would be the governor of Oklahoma, which in Oklahoma is about as good as you can do. And uh, and, uh, you know, she, she they may have left because that became sort of public or or, you know, it was like John Sr. was like, well, let's get out of town and maybe we can start over in Florida. Um, things don't go that well in Florida. At one point in 1926, uh I think 1925, actually, they buy a restaurant and then that's the end of the land boom. It's like they're the last people to invest money in the land boom. And this restaurant goes, goes, uh, goes south. Um, Around this time, John Berryman's mother starts an affair with their landlord, whose name is John Berryman. So you can kind of see where this would go, right? So He's 20 years older than her, um, and this is the beginning of the end of the of Martha Little and John Sr.'s marriage. I'm going to read just a little bit about the state of John Smith. This is from this incredible biography by um, Paul Mariani called Dream Song, The Life of John Berryman. As far as I can tell, it's, it's the authoritative biography. Um, Paul Mariani also wrote uh, a biography of William Carlos Williams. Uh, Brad, can I just can I yeah. interject? Mental illness. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're not. <laughs> no, we're not in the realm of the well. No, 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 yeah. no, no. It's yeah. It's, yeah. it's 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 some of it's bad in, innate. Some of it's uh, being forced on you. But yes, I Fair agree. I agree. Bad tunes. Mm-hmm. You don't even know what you're in for. Kevin. Oh yeah, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, J- Jason, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very comfortable and yeah. and like adjusted. Go on, yeah. Brad. So, okay, so this affair, so so Martha's having this affair with with this older man, John, who is John Berryman. Uh, that's his name. And uh, it she they, she's not careful about it. This is, I think, the thing about her affairs. She doesn't seem to care who knows that she's having these affairs. It was so obvious that John Berryman's wife like went to New York, like just fled the scene down there in Florida. Um, and John Sr., our John Berryman's dad, didn't take this all that well. He tried to have a Cuban mistress for a little while, um, but she apparently stole all of his money and let and disappeared. Um, so, you know, it's just not going well. I'm going to read you a little bit about the, the status of John Sr. here. 
Um, and this is in 1926. Within weeks, Smith, Smith's mistress deserted him, taking whatever money he had and returned to Cuba. In the meantime, divorce proceedings progressed. That's with Martha Little. That's our John Berryman's mother. Smith feeling more and more alone. On Friday night, June 25th, he went to Kip the Kipling Arms to see his wife. He was confused, frustrated, defeated, afraid. He wanted the divorce, but now he felt unsure. Maybe he and Martha could go away together and try again somewhere else. They the talk went on and on between Smith and Berryman until finally Martha fell asleep in the living room. About one in the morning, as she later recounted, Martha awoke to find that Smith and Berryman had left the room. Smith going to the bedroom and Berryman going back to his apartment. Martha dozed off again, then awoke in darkness. She got up and went to the bedroom, bedroom, opened the door and saw her husband sleeping there. Then she went back to the couch and fell asleep again. When she woke, it was just after 6 a.m. She went back to the bedroom, but this time her husband was not there. Thinking he was sitting out in the car, she went downstairs and looked out, looked, but the car was empty. A few minutes later, as she walked to the rear of the building, she found him. He was lying by the steps, face up, his arms and legs spread eagled. The 32 lay near his head, and there was a bullet hole in his chest. She ran inside to John Angus's apartment and woke him. He put on something, then ran out to look at the body. The muzzle of the gun was still warm. So the story is how, how John Berryman's, our John Berryman's father committed suicide on the doorstep of their apartment building. When John, our John Berryman was 12 years old, he had a younger brother, Robert, who I think was eight at the time. Not good, not 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 good. And then, <clears throat> ten weeks later, Martha marries John Berryman, the landlord that she'd been having an affair with, and they moved to New York. And he's twenty years older than than Martha, right? He's he's an older he's an older man. He's you know probably I don't know exactly what his age is, but he's deep into his forties. She's fifties probably, um, and uh, our John Berryman <clears throat> would be given his name. And would refer to him as Uncle Jack. Uh, this is this is Act One. That's Act One. That yeah. <laughs> that's extraordinarily. Yeah. He's yeah. okay. Well, carry that's, me through, Brad. Yeah, like, that's bring that's, me bring me to the uh, you know. Yeah, that's 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 what. Give me some hope, man. Yeah. Well, well, mm. okay. So they goes to they go to um, they move to Queens. Um, John Berryman seems to kind of like New York City. Um, he, uh, he chases after girls. He does really well in, in school. He's, you know, he's the most stute voted, the most studious boy. Um, you know, he, he starts his habit at this time in Queens of having more than one girlfriend or than one woman that he's chasing, which, which wait, is pretty persistent throughout his I life. I don't understand. Like, you know, so wait, so this family is like from the Midwest. Yep. And they're like living in Florida and mm -hmm. now they're living in Queens. Yeah. After a suicide, right. after dad like blows his brains out. Yes. In the yard. Yeah. 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 Jason, yeah. Jason, talk yeah. to me. What, what is going on? <laughs> what year are we? 1926. 1926. Yeah. yeah. So what? So John Angus Berryman, the, the stepfather, mm -hmm. is yeah. very interested in the stock market and real estate. And yeah. his, his goal is to convince Martha to take John Patrick, who is the, the brother, and, and John, 
to our John uh, Richard. Uh, I messed up his brother's name. No, I think it's, Any, it's anywhere, Robert. It doesn't matter. Yeah, Robert. Yeah, jeez, yep. I can't believe I forgot that. Um, anywhere yep. that there seems to be action. Oh. So they're like they're supremely American. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. His, his stepfather becomes a bond salesman when they move to New York, a yeah. somewhat successful bond salesman. His mother is actually much more successful as a mid-level executive at ad agencies. Yeah. So she's actually the primary breadwinner, which is really sort of fascinating for like the late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. Yeah. But they, it, they do, they do yeah. fairly well for themselves during the depression. Yeah, even even with the depression going on. And in in it, it is interesting that Martha Little does manage to do pretty well for herself. And I don't want to dismiss any talents that she she likely had, but with her level of promiscuity, you do kind of wonder how much of that is, you know, she's she's throwing it around. Right. Is she <laughs> no is she's she like she's promiscuous through her whole it, it's always one you know she's always overlapping her partners you know pretty intensively oh, throughout man. her whole life i think she in ends up 20s? getting married four four or five in the times. 20s oh man yeah, yeah that yeah that gets rough yeah yeah and she would and we'll talk more about this but she would uh according to uh nathan knapp another article about him about berryman called uh w- the wounds talk uh uh, she would when he, when Barryman was like in his twenties, she yes. would tell people, tell Barryman, introduce me as your sister to your friends. Get out! Yeah, 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 yeah. So, no. Yes. So uh, it's, yeah, it's uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Um, yep. Just <laughs> so bop it around. Yeah. Just hang yeah. it out. Yep. Now, just, when, just yeah, yeah. Go on. And 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 so John Senior, and this is Kevin. This is this is maybe the part that might outrage you the most. John Senior had been a calf, was a Catholic. After he died, Martha Little, the mother, reconverted to uh, the Episcopalian Church and sent John Berryman to an all boys Episcopalian boarding school called South Kent. Well, that's too bad. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. And this this morning, see, see the, 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 I'm sorry. See, you get me. Yeah. Right. Well, that's that's, that's not, uh, the hits keep coming. Uh, Kevin, Kevin, yeah. Kevin, what's up? Hope. What's up, man? There's hope. I don't yeah. want to give too much away, but there there's hope to bury him in yeah. connection to the one true faith. There is. I, there is. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. there's there there are no atheists on deathbeds. <laughs> Nobody's sitting here, like you know, in the in the in the grave. No, you're right. You're right. It's certainly not in Barryman's life. That's for sure. No, I mean, you know, it's well, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he goes to this all boys school, and here's the thing. Here's the issue with the all boys school. Um, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. So on the one hand, it's a curse because Barryman was a really good student. I mean. It, it, it's pretty clear that no matter what you think of Berryman's poetry, it, it, any it, it these things come down to a matter of taste, right? You you cannot like this, his poetry, and that's that's fine. He is very high IQ, right? This is a smart guy, um, extremely high verbal IQ, extremely be, turns himself into an extremely well-read person. So um, he. You take him, this kid who's good at academics, and you put him in a school where they didn't really care about academics all that much. They cared about how good you were at sports. 
and sports weren't really his his bag you know um so he kind of had a hard that's time. So that's so funny that like that that's a thing that like America does to people. Right, right, right. It's, it's so like absurd. Yeah, and yeah. you know, public you school can, kids just yeah. end up like getting sport, sport right. ball, sport ball. What it, are you doing, sport right, ball? Right, and you can yeah, understand just keep doing sport ball. You can understand like, like no, I'm a poet, like doing and they're right. they, and they you know, and they're like no, I'm a poet, and they're right. just like no, sport ball, no. sport ball. Right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the the musical, do right. the musical, do yeah. Greece. Do Greece. <laughs> so a funny story is that Berryman sort of is at the bottom physically in his class. So he can't join the football team when he's in the first year. So they let him do gardening instead because he has to do something right, with his physical. hands in order to be involved. But he Just, he's he's obsessed during his high school career that he's got to play football and he's got to play hockey and he'll do whatever he possibly can to become the best. Yeah, he was he was Brad, kind of status Brad played football. I did play football. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. What did you what what positions did you play, Brad? Me? I, I played play football. I played uh well when I hit I played nerd. I played uh I played a little bit of everything, but like senior year, you know, when it's like a big deal, I was uh, outside linebacker. Yeah, man. Yeah, I tackled a lot of people. I liked yeah, I you, liked to you hit did, people. I wasn't did even you do I, did you did you did special teams too, right? I did special teams, yeah. I like to run yeah. at people full yeah. speed and hit them. <laughs> Get him. <laughs> but I couldn't really throw and I couldn't really catch. And like I, you know, and, I avoided and what all I learned that. is to be a good running back, you have to not like hitting people. I this no, is funny. No. I played what, it. I don't was he was he was he, was he was he a was he a manlet? No, no, he was I think he was about six foot tall eventually. Okay. Yeah. He yeah, was okay. a you know, he was probably taller than average, but, but but here's the thing is he didn't take care of himself. So, you know. He he didn't. He was the kind of guy who would forget to eat, and we're going to get into more of that as he's an adult. But well, yeah, um, because no, because his his family was totally dis- dysfunctional uh-huh. and abusive to mm-hmm. him. Like mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. it's like they, yeah, okay, right. yeah. So this this thing this thing at school goes it goes a little bit better in his I think by the because between fourteen and sixteen he grows like eight inches, and so it goes a little bit better. And he does like Jason was saying, he is a guy that is to some degree status obsessed. So it, it, yeah, so if the game is like you know whatever the game is to get socially accepted, he will he will try to play that game. So it's learning. He you know he learned all the pot the lyrics to all the popular songs specifically so he could sing them at part you know sing with people at parties. Um, Later, when he goes to Columbia, he memorizes the names of all of the incoming freshmen so that, you know, if you're at an event, you can be like, oh, you're, you know, what? Yeah. 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 He went to Columbia. OK, he right. did. Okay. Yeah, he did. But I want to give you a story from South Kent. Right. This is and, and this is I think will give you an image of the kind of dude we're dealing with. Um, let me find it here. So he's out. He's uh He's he he gets himself into kind of a snowball fight. People picked on him early on, though this would taper off as he approached his senior year. So they would steal from him and make fun of him and you know, steal stuff and then hide it and then and then blame him for losing it. All kinds he was always getting he was always getting picked on. And again, this tapered off, but but especially in his first couple of years, it was pretty rough. So he gets involved in this snowball fight. And I'm just gonna read you this story from the Paul Mariani biography. Brown, who's another one of the boys, threw another snowball and missed again. Angered, he hoisted a chunk of, of snow and ice, ran after Berryman, who was winded now, and brought it crashing down on his neck and back. 
Berryman turned and swung wildly, trying to defend himself. That was fine with Brown, who hit Berryman in the face and knocked him down. Then, for good measure, he pinned Berryman's arms with his knees and began pummeling him. The others watched while Berryman struggled to get up, crying at the stupid injustice of it all. Then, in the distance, Berryman heard the afternoon train. Brown, finished now with Berryman, let him up. But by then, Berryman was hysterical. Which train was coming, he demanded. And when one of the boys told him, he dashed for the tracks and threw himself into the path of the train. Frightened at this unexpected turn of events, the others ran after him and managed to pull him off the tracks moments before the train sped past. So that's Berryman's first suicide attempt. Um, and I think it's indicative of a couple things. I mean, one is this, his sort of, uh, his, his, I mean, that's a tough situation. You're getting beat up. But one of the kids in the gang of, of people who was throwing snowballs and stuff at him who was somebody he thought of as a friend. That hurts. You know, the whole thing, the whole thing is sucks to be John Berryman in this situation, but his reaction to it, I think tells us the kind of person that he is. He's got a little bit of a flair for the dramatic. Um, he, he has a tendency to be a little bit hysterical. Maybe, um, he's a sensitive dude. I mean, he's going to grow up to be one of the great American poets. So you'd expect him to have a little bit of an edge to be a little bit sensitive, right. To, 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 uh, be a little maybe disagreeable, which, which we find that he actually is. Um, so, so he goes from the school by the end, it's kind of okay. And even later in life, he will, he will pass through South Kent and pay a visit to the, whoever's the headmaster at the time. Um, and there's, there's a certain degree of fondness though, though certainly not a hunt. It's certainly not pure fondness, a fond memory of South Kent. Um, from, uh, there he goes to Columbia on a partial scholarship and like we we're saying, for like for a lot of people, college is this opportunity to reinvent yourself, right? It's an entirely new social milieu. If there's stuff that you felt like you, you know, ways you had screwed up. It, and we all know in high school, if you do something s- stupid freshman year, that might be your nickname for four years, man. Like it's it's hard to it's hard to undo those relationships if they didn't go well. Um and for Berryman, you know, they didn't necessarily go all that well. So he ends up going to Columbia um, and he's kind of got a couple of ambitions. One, when he when he starts Columbia, he's got a couple of ambitions. One is that he's going to he's not going to make these sort of status mistakes that he made at South Kent. He's going to be well liked. and He's going to be popular. Um, another is that he is and this is more for his life in general, is he's going to do something great, though he doesn't really know what it is yet. Right. He's 18, smart kid, kind of troubled. Father's committed suicide, some confusion in his background. But he's going to do something great, no, even yeah, though he doesn't yeah. know what it is yet. Hang on here. Yeah. You're, you're just like you're, you're passing over the fact that his like father blew his brains out. Like, oh, oh in yeah. The front no, it's, yard. it's there, man. No, and, and it he, does not. Yeah. No, it never goes away. I mean, he's got poems he's writing in his in you know towards the end of his life. That that's the primary thing. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's the poetically you, and artistically, it's what he spends most of his life trying to figure out. Well, you know, yeah. like you would, like you would. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like yeah. that's that's the most important thing. Like your mm-hmm. your 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 father has like abandoned you. Right. You know, like on the the lawn. Well, I mean, well, like, then it's then, just... then the literally part of the reason he kills himself is because of this relationship that that Berryman his mother killed, has okay. right Fair enough. no that john yeah. berryman's father killed himself right it's because gotcha. his mother because his wife was cheating on him with this other guy john john the uh, the other john berryman right and then 
that guy, your mom marries that guy and then you get his name. Like there's some right. weird, there's some deep Freudian yeah. stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, 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 right. Berryman is a really difficult person. And I know you guys do a really good job of doing this on the cast yeah. of not psychoanalyzing your writers. Yeah. Berryman is yeah, probably yeah, yeah. one of the most difficult people not to psychoanalyze. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because he kind of puts it to a certain extent, he puts it all out there. Yeah. And some of his problems are so dramatic. Like, as we'll see, like, you know, we're not we're not talking about a guy who sort of suffered quietly, like, oh, I never knew he had that problem. You know, like <laughs> it was sort of it was sort of all out there. Um, now, uh, there's a guy. So he goes to Columbia, which is cool. Columbia is in New York. He likes New York. He's able to live with his mother for a while, which has, you know, ups and there's pros and cons to that. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about her before the post-Columbia step. One guy I want to introduce here, though, um, we're going to meet a lot of famous poets telling this story. This guy isn't a famous poet, but the way his relationship to, to Berryman is, I think, indicative of what Berryman's style is. There's this guy, E. Milton Halliday, who also goes to Columbia. Um, and Berryman meets him at this, this cart party at Barnard, which you guys probably know is a girls, is a girls college. Um, and so they bonded over that, right? Hanging out with Barnard. It's just, it's just Columbia for chicks. For, for chicks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in, so. in the social, they would often, you know, they would be coordinated social events, tea dances and things they would call them for them. Um, so they, they would kind of bonded over this pursuit of women and Berryman taught Halliday how to dance at a quote tea dance. And this was his rule. This was Berryman's rule. Um, hold on tight. And don't pull back even when you have an erection. That was his rule for the tea dance. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you yeah. know, Berryman has a problem with this. He is very handsy, uh, as you might say. He, I, I can't remember if it's Halliday or somebody else. It, there's, I know at least one time he tries to in a totally indiscreet and drunken, gross way, tries to steal Halliday's girl. But I think he does it to him, like to Halliday specifically, like two or three times. And he's always like trying to poach his, his biggest, there's something about if a friend of his is, has an attractive spouse or girlfriend, he like needs her and, and will take like intense steps to get her, like lock the door behind him to get her. Right. Um, and there are multiple things that happen in here that are like, I don't know if that was like, I, I'm not saying Berryman raped anybody, but like there were situations that were like, ah, that's yeah. sexual assault, yeah. probably like he, in one of his letters, he even says that he can't he can't control himself, that he he came close to raping one of his friends, girlfriends. He, he has come out and said that in a letter yeah. to that friend. Right. That's just that's sort of the le level of libido that that we're dealing with with him. Yeah. And it's going on like pers it's persistent, like through a lot of his life. I mean, um, you know, in into his there's a he's got a moment with Louis uh, Louis Gluck late in his life where he's like making gross passes at her at a writing event, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a thing. And, and, and it's it's 
it's every woman, but it's also particularly, and I think this has to do with this sort of status obsession, this jealousy thing that, you know, oh, my friend has got an attractive, you know, wife, but if I got her, like, you know what I mean? Then who am I? Right. Like, well, that, well that's absolutely, I don't mean to jump ahead, but no, that's absolutely, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. So when he does his, when he has his first affair in the late forties on his first wife, mm-hmm. he wants it. He wants to make sure that he's having an affair with a married woman. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the times that he'll tell friends I have to be involved with someone who's also married because of sort of his conception of status and being on equal footing within relationships. Mm -hmm. So this, this is something that carries through throughout most of his adult relationships is, is this, is this model. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's reading the biography. There are some uncomfortable, there are some uncomfortable situations where it's like, man, you are just ruining your entire social like world right now in a situation where this this woman clearly doesn't want anything to do with you either right it's it's a lot of times it's not even like playing on a flirtation or something which you know you can second guess but at least there's some mutual there's some reciprocity to it this is this is like some of this is just like yeah grabbing them you know like that's pretty it's pretty rough (laughs) so the question is okay so he's kind of got this thing the big question for me is like, as I'm reading this is, okay, how does he go from this guy, this sort of girl crazy, you know, uh, increasingly becoming a booze hound? How does he become this, this great poet and not just a great poet, but like an erudite scholar at the same time, right? He's not just like a, he's not just like a coffee shop poet who, who, who is extremely talented, but he's like, he he could have made significant scholarly contributions and, and did to some extent. So how does he become this guy? Well, this is where we have to talk about this guy, Mark Van Doren, who is is really pretty interesting to me. Um, Mark Van Doren. Well, I don't know, Jason, do you know much about Mark Van Doren? I can talk about him. If not, he's not a poet. He's not known. Well, he is a poet. I don't know. He is a poet. I mean, he becomes one of the principal editors of Partisan Review, which Mm -hmm. is right. One of the reasons that he has such an intricately um, important relationship to Berryman. Uh, I don't know much about his personal life. If you want to go into that aspect, Brad. Yeah, I I don't. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, no, sorry. I I don't know a ton about him personal uh, his personal life. I mean, I know he's about twenty years older than Barryman. Um, I know the one thing about him is that he is he's sort of a for whatever his reputation is a as a poet. He his reputation as a as a as a professor at Columbia is huge. All right, so I think even now there there's there's this, there might even be like a Mark Van Doren position of some kind at Columbia. I'm not sure, of that, but he he's still his name still rings out at Columbia years, decades and decades later. Um, he not only would teach Berryman, but he would uh, he would for a time be a, a teacher for Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, uh, Lionel Trilling, Thomas Merton, Robert Lax. You know, if you went if you were a a writer in the in the 20s 30s um and you're going to columbia mark van Doren was going to loom excuse me was going to loom pretty large um and this guy was the he was a sort of a father figure i think for for berryman that he'd never had he you know he here was this guy you know you're at columbia you're chasing girls you want to do something great and then you see mark van Doren, who is a 
who is a respected poet, who is sane, who is intelligent, who encourages hard work, you know, who doesn't doesn't make excuses for himself or for other people. And Berryman, I think, saw this and was like, well, this is like my this is, you know, a guy who's whose father killed himself and whose uncle Jack is this creepy old man, kind of like Mark Van Doren is the guy now. And he wants he wants Mark Van Doren to be impressed with him. And Mark Van Doren is impressed with him. Um, and then Van Doren is giving of his time and his ability to look at drafts and his ability mm-hmm. to sort of shepherd people's work, which is definitely what Berryman needs at this point mm-hmm. in his career is to sort of be set on this path of seeing someone being an academic and being a poet and what that and what that entails. Mm-hmm. And Van Doren is, you know, and and this goes into the way that Berryman ends up being a teacher as well, mm-hmm. is that Berryman's teaching is incredibly hands-on and he'll read anyone's draft at any point and he'll read multiple drafts and he'll engage with the student and that's sort of the relationship that he received at Columbia so it's very much that sort of um, pedigree of how to be a teacher and how to be a working academic that sort of Berryman learns at this point in his life too. Yeah no that's really well put I didn't think about that because we do learn that Berryman is despite all of his issues is apparently by all accounts, an incredible teacher. Right. And yeah, you're, I think you're right. I never quite made that connection. He did Mark Van Doren, I think did teach him how to teach, which yeah. is, which is huge. That's that. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And then you wonder, did Berryman teach anybody to teach, right? Is there this lineage that, that, well, you know, would I still mean, exist? Phil Levine said that everything that he learned well when he was at Iowa, he got from got from Berryman. Got from Berryman. So yeah. yeah, there's that there's that relationship. Donald Hall, sort of another late, was very influenced from his time at Iowa by Berryman as well. Mm-hmm. Donald Hall was one of the teachers of one of my teachers when I was at the University of Tampa. So it's okay. kind of like yeah. there's always this building up of people that came from the past and sort of passed on that way of doing things so that I think that that does exist, that yeah. that, that sort of influence exists. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. Very cool. So um, now he meets Van Doren and, and Berryman had had some academic troubles, not so much that he couldn't handle the classes, but I, I think he was, he was kind of he was what we would just call partying too hard now, drinking and going to parties and chasing women. Um, and he actually gets suspended for a semester um, and kind of told like, hey, you know, figure out if, what you want to do, because whatever you're doing now isn't cutting, isn't cutting it. Um, and Mark Van Doren kind of imposes a challenge on him to pass his course and I think Berryman learned something really important about really hard work. I don't know that he'd ever academically had to try as hard as he did in this period. And I want to just read this little this little thing. And it's it's almost like this uh, it's it's almost like this epiphanic kind of experience. Um, let's see what page is around forty one. Um, yeah. Okay. So. Uh, when classes began, so too did the beginning of what he promised himself and his mother would be his ordered existence. He finished the 18th century syllabus, taking care and lengthy notes of each book he read, Mal Flanders, Clarissa, Tristram Shandy, Gibbon, Payne, and Blake, 
He read the 18th century poets from nine one evening until five the next morning, slept three hours, then read them again all that Saturday until four the next morning. He was exhausted, but felt a marvelous satisfaction in the inevitability of industry uh, once one is set. He slept for a few hours until Sunday morning, necked with one of his girlfriends, then went back to the 18th century. He grabbed a few more hours sleep, attended classes, then read Payne and Gibbon far into the night. He would prove to Van Doren that this time he meant business. Right, so he does have this, you know, despite all of his issues, he does have this ability when he needs to and when he wants to, to bear down and, and you know, make, make something happen. Um, and you know it and it ends up working he um he goes after columbia he goes to cambridge um to get his master's degree under a fellowship through columbia so uh i think that's kind of this is this is berryman going from being born in the middle of nowhere oklahoma to being financed to go to cambridge to study poetry it's it's really you know it's quite a transition to be honest it's 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 uh one of those lifestyles that's, that's uh, can be difficult to imagine for us now in a certain way, though, though, you know, it does, this sort of thing does still happen. Um, I want to just paint, uh, make sure we've got a couple things about Berryman before we talk about the, um, the Cambridge stuff. Um, and I, I didn't know how deep to go into the Cambridge. A lot of it's very interesting. We'll see how, how deep we get into it. Um, we got to kind of get an image of, of Berryman here. So we know he's, he, we know he's, he's chasing after women. We know he's, he's talented uh, poetically. Mark, um, he hasn't published a whole lot though, though he's had like kind of local success. I think he won the Van Rensselaer prize. Um, uh, he won the Van Rensselaer prize in uh, Columbia, which was like a, a university level prize. Um, but he hadn't published nationally. I don't think yet. Um, until after he'd been in Cambridge, he might have had a poem in the nation. I've got a note of that. Anyway, um, there's something we got to say about his else. We got to say about his disposition or his his placement in the world. So his mother was very naggy. Uh, so he's living with her for a time, and it's probably not a great idea for him to live with with, with her um, because he's disagreeable. She's very naggy. She's very. Um, uh neurotic to be to be to be honest and Berryman starts to adopt this thing where he will sort of pass out when she gets too neurotic and she starts talking too much and she like won't give up on something he will just sort of like faint <laughs> and it would be years later before they figured out kind of what that was it turns out that he maybe had a mild form of epilepsy it might have been kind of a psychosomatic thing but i i was fascinated to read that that just like you know ar he'd argue with her and argue it and at some point he would just <laughs> he would just become overcome by it which is crazy right so um so you've got that a, a one or two other notes about his mother the names there's something about names in this whole thing that's that's really interesting so john allen smith becomes john berryman the, the the new father is john berryman but also uncle jack um his mother starts going by the name jill angel at the prompting of uncle jack which is there's something weird about that to me too. I, I don't know, Jill Angel. Um, I think Jillian was her middle name, maybe. So maybe that's not that that weird. But just the whole, I don't know what the, what's going on there exactly. 
but um well, i think that you know kevin said it earlier i mean yeah. these are this is the family that is quintessentially american right yeah. this uh, constantly reinventing yourself to try to fit in with with what is a constantly changing you know modernity i think i think that that's really part of it to to an extent that's like bigger than, yeah <laughs> like that, that feels comfortable for us like you know changing all these multiple name changes but right it's, uh, right right yeah no i think i think that makes sense and certainly certainly you yeah you kind of wonder like Berryman, our Berryman, he keeps the Berryman name. Is it because there's some shame about his father in some right. way? You know, I think that's, I think there's something there. Um, also, Smith, maybe Smith just isn't catchy enough. You know, it's well, not. There's, the, there's that story where he has difficulty sometimes pronouncing Berryman and he'll say Berryman. Mm -hmm. And he does that for years, well into his time at Cambridge. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he has a difficult time adjusting to having that be his identity, even though. Yeah. Even though that is his, yeah, that is his name. Yeah, he eventually yeah. sort of accepts it. Yeah. So we'll talk about a little, a little bit about his time at Cambridge. So uh, America. Yeah. America's America's the greatest country in the world, Brad. It is. <laughs> it's so good. Go somewhere else. <laughs> everyone, every, everyone loves America. Yeah. 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 Well, 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 yeah, yeah that's an image in so in a lot of ways. Yeah. Sure. Well, it's you know, it's it's yeah. ideology. So right. you're not, you know, so you're not you're not confusing anyone. Yeah. Like yeah. it's yeah 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 fugazi fugazi yeah well you know and he, he didn't john berryman uh you know he probably yeah. could have stayed in europe if he wanted he definitely comes back he's in mm -hmm. cambridge uh 1930 october yeah. 1936 he gets there and he stays there for uh, a couple of years um he uh one thing that's interesting it, the timing i i like a lot of these other figures that he runs into because it helps us understand the time he when he gets there, he does try to see if Virginia Woolf he sort of like sees if Virginia Woolf is around and wants to publish one of his poems and doesn't have any luck there. He runs into um uh he runs into Dylan Thomas, which would be I, uh, a, a lifelong I want to talk about I want to talk about Dylan Thomas. Yeah, please do. Yeah. Uh, I think that Thomas has a great effect on Berryman, and you were talking earlier, Brad, about how does Berryman become Berryman? And you and you had some of the lineage being Mark Van Doren. Mm -hmm. I think that Van Doren taught Berryman how to be a teacher. I think Dylan Thomas taught Berryman how to be a poet mm. for good and for ill. Berryman's drinking is not a central part of his personality before he goes to Cambridge. But he is so influenced by Thomas as a figure, more so even than as a poet, mm -hmm. as someone that in um, in one of the other biographies, they talk about how Berryman is turned off by the fact that Thomas is so famous. And yeah. Dylan Thomas is two days younger than Berryman. Right. So Berryman's born on the 25th. And Thomas is born on the 27th, same year. Yeah. And I think that that instantly puts that status seeking that Berryman is so 
um, obsessed with in a rock tumbler. It just accentuates exactly what he needs at that moment. Mm -hmm. And Thomas is able to be witty and profound and accepted and drunk. Right, right. And Berryman wants that to be sort of a way that he, or sees that as a way that he can interact with the art, that he can interact with the the world. And Mm -hmm. I think that when, you know, initially when, when Berryman gets to Cambridge, he's pissed because he does not want to associate with Thomas because he thinks Thomas is a lesser poet Mm -hmm. and he doesn't understand why he's so famous. And then when he sees sort of how Thomas is able to control a room that really influences the way that Berryman, even how Berryman is, is in his later life said to be a like, amazing spoken word poet Mm -hmm. and like has this commanding voice. I think a lot of this has to deal with Berryman picking up from Dylan Thomas, what it meant to sort of been this raconteur poet. Uh, Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's, that's really well put. And that's not a connection I fully made either, but that totally makes sense. Right. It's like he got permission to be a drunk, right? Like, like, yeah, it's okay. Cause look at this guy and maybe that's part of it you know, is, is, is going, going into that, into that range. That's really, that's really interesting. I do want to read a little bit, uh, something again from the biography about his time in Cambridge. Um, let's see if I can find it here. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting time. And, and, and he's, you know, it's, it's a heady time too, because you're getting sent there by another school and it's, it's, you're kind of making your own way. You're kind of uh, you're you're getting exposed to various other you know you're learning a Brad. lot yeah Brad yes read more poems yeah read you want another poem Brad I want more poems <laughs> yeah okay okay Kevin, let's do it Kevin wants more poems yeah the let's... working class guy <laughs> okay. from the Midwest wants more poems all right let's let's nail it well okay, let's so go I got some I got some I have some in the notes, but I can just, I can just this guy. Grab I like one. this guy. Yeah. Jason's great. <laughs> this is what we needed for this because Man. we're not, we're not poetry dudes really. Dude. Right. Yeah. No, but I, no, but I am. I, I am too. I'm, I'm, a, too. I'm a poetry I've, guy. I've been, yeah. I've been uh, obsessed with Yates lately. I just wake up in the morning. And it's the first thing I do is read Yates. Read so, more poems. Yeah. Okay. It's so we're going to do so it. So good. We're going to do it. So give uh well, Jason, you want to read Jason. I'm trying to, I'll I'll read uh, Dream Song 14, which is probably my favorite Berryman poem. Um, And I want to see what Kevin's reaction is to it. I'll try to have my both, my most outlandish Berryman-esque booming voice to come across the mic so we can. You have to get in the mic. uh, Get in the mic. Get into it. Get in the mic. So here we go. Let's go. Life, friends, is boring. You must say so. After all, the sky flashes. The great sea yearns. We ourselves flash and yearn. And moreover, my mother told me as a boy, repeatedly, ever to confess you're bored means you have no inner resources. I conclude now I have no inner resources because I am heavy bored. People bore me. Literature bores me, especially great literature. Henry bores me with his plights and gripes as bad as Achilles. 
who loves people and valiant art, which bores me. And the tranquil hills and gin look like a drag, and somehow a dog has taken itself and its tail considerably ah. away into mountains, or sea, or sky, leaving and behind. Insanely, it, it bores me. <laughs> me, wag. You could have read it better. It was John Berryman? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Folks, <laughs> so let's go, uh, folks. If you haven't check out, just go you on YouTube and search John Berryman reading. Prepared. Uh, they're, for, incredible. You know, they're incredible. They're incredible. reading. And that was, that was good. That was the energy that he presented Ooh. and all of that. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things I want to talk about is how Berryman uses repetition to keep us on. The precipice. Mm, okay. You know, yeah. oftentimes when we think about repetition as writers, we think that repetition is a detriment. That what it's going to do, it's going to lull the audience into this sense of complacency, or it's going to make them um, disregard what we're going to say. But he's able to use board and inner resource in such a way as into hit it again to make us think about what it actually means to be this overwhelmed with what life is like. Mm -hmm. And I also want to point out that point where he says plights and gripes. <laughs> One of the things that Berryman does is this ability to have assonance, that repetition of vowel sounds pop in places where he wants us to pay attention. Mm. It's something that makes him pretty unique among the poets of his generation. And it's one of the things that makes him an exciting poet to me mm. is for all of his need to want to be this very narrative poet to write long poems about people, places, and things. He also wants to play with sound and make sound like an integral part of the poetic experience, which was something that was kind of not common in the mid-century and which is something that really excites me about him and one of the reasons why before i learned about him as a person hearing his work like was such an influence on me and wanting to get that sense of sound in my own poetry yeah yeah i know i i I wouldn't have been able to articulate that, but that that definitely makes sense. And I know when I was starting to read, his, in particular, the dream songs, I was like, oh, this is why poetry is how it is now. Like, it, it was clear to me reading his poems. It's like, oh, this is why everybody who's in an MFA program has read John <laughs> and And not in a bad way whatsoever, but like, literally, like, this is the, this is like the Beatles of modern poetry or something. Like, it's, it's at the, it's a water, he's sort of, the dream songs feels like a watershed moment to me in, in, in American poetry for sure. And we'll get there. I mean, this, it's kind of down the road bi biographically. He he has to take a lot of routes before he figures out how to write a dream song, it seems like, which was which is interesting to kind of chart because early on, he's just a sort of a assemblage of his influences, it feels right. like. 
Yeah, he's yes. like writing a little bit like all of these very. He's writing a little bit like Yates and a little bit like Van Doren and a little bit like all of these people who are around him. That's um, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, um, particularly the Yates and Shakespeare as well because of his. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna right, write like if you're gonna write like somebody, you might as well write like Yates and Shakespeare though. <laughs> I mean, you could do you could do a lot worse than that. That's, that's true. for sure. That's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. So, um, you know, we'll we'll. He, so he's in Cambridge for a little while. I was going to dive in there. I want to just say a couple things about Cam- his time at Cambridge. One is that he meets this woman named uh, Beryl Eamon, um, who the, the, the kind of the intimation is that they're going to marry each other. This is an English woman. She's an actress. When, when they meet, she's an actress. They spend a summer together in Heidelberg, Germany in 1937, which and Berryman gets to sort of see the 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 burbling up of Nazism, even though, it, you know, it, we're not in world full-blown World War II yet, but he sees it coming. He's very careful about the letters he writes and that sort of thing. It's just it's sort of interesting that he sees it, you know, they kind of go to Heidelberg for, for a summer to spend the summer. And it's like, oh, there's something dark happening here. It's just a very interesting moment. Um, he does meet Yates. Um, he's he writes a poem to, and sends it to Yates. Yates writes back a thank you. And Yates is the grand old man of poetry at this time. He's he's not he's a he's a, in his um, I don't know how old he would be. He would be in his late fifties, I think, at this point. Um, but but sort of past. He he'd been famous for you know most of his life at that point. Um, and and uh, you know Berryman Berryman gets an audience with him, however brief, and it's like touching it's like touching the robe of the saint for Berryman. It's very it, just meeting him is very influential. Um, now he comes back. Uh, Berryman comes back to the United States. You know, there's this suggestion that Beryl is going to to move there and they're going to get married. Um, but once he comes back, it's mostly despite the fact that she does come and visit for a time. It's mostly like a romance by correspondence and it sort of fades out. Um, <laughs> she I can't remember exactly the timing of this, but <laughs> um, I can't remember the timing of this exactly. But um, she uh, either she has a brief affair with somebody else or he has a brief affair with somebody else. There's one one does it before the other one. When when he does it, she uh, Berryman writes her uh, that he needs it. Like if he doesn't have if he doesn't have sex, he's going to have a nervous breakdown. And so, honey, it's purely it's medical. It's practically a medical condition. And I just, you know, don't think about it too much. I'm just going to be, you know, I'm going to be sleeping around a little bit when she does it like as a one off. He freaks out. He can't handle it whatsoever. Right. So so you definitely got this sort of double standard thing going on. Um. When he comes back from Cambridge, it's a little while before he's able to settle into anything kind of permanent in terms of work. Um, he he, um, you know, he's he's right. He's writing poetry. Um, he's trying to make things happen in that regard. Um, but I think he. I think the first place he ends up working is Wayne State University or Wayne University at that time. Um, Wayne University, actually, that's where I got my first degree. And it was funny. They gave the address of his first apartment. I was like, oh, where is that? Well, the building is no longer there. But it's literally the building that he used to live in is the footprint of 
a parking garage that I used to go to every single day. So I was sort of like in the same, you know, for without knowing it, it's, there's no John Berryman plaque at, uh, at Wayne State <laughs> University. They don't, they don't care that he was there. So that was just kind of interesting to know that he was, he was, he was haunting around Detroit for a little while. Um, he hated Detroit. Um, he, you know, it was, it was pretty rough on him. He did befriend uh, Florence and Bain Campbell, who were were pretty influential. Um, actually, we could back up. Did I write that here? We can back up a little bit. There, there is an interesting. Um, oh, I do want to talk about this because he goes up to. Um, he spends the summer of 1939 up at Grand Marais, Grand Marais, which is up in the Upper Peninsula, which is. Seemed, struck me as an unusual place to go. There's like nothing up there. The Upper Peninsula. I don't know if if you're familiar with it at all, Jason. It's, it's a it's depopulated quite yeah. a bit. It's like Canada. It's and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. It's like the Yukon. It's like there's just not that much around. So it was interesting to me that he he went up there with the Campbells. Um, there's also a story about his younger brother at this time. His brother, his younger brother, was was hitchhiking around the country. And wrote a letter and said, hey, can I come up and see you in the Upper Peninsula? And Berryman said, yeah, sure, come on. Um, somewhere along the way in Sheboygan, Michigan, which is northern Michigan, but not quite the Upper Peninsula, he passes out on the road, gets run over by somebody driving their pickup, and like is nearly killed, gets some teeth knocked out, and he might have had a, he had some like damage to his head. And... Um, and they finally get a hold of John Berryman and they fly down there and visit him and it all ends up being okay. But it's just sort of this crazy scene. And of course, it's an opportunity for John Berryman to act totally hysterical in the face of, of bad news. Right. It's, it's always this like dramatic, like, oh, how, you know, how could anybody do this to us? And, and he's he always has to kind of make a scene. Um, and. And on the one hand, I think he is, I think the sensitivity is genuine, um, but there does seem to be, I don't want to say too much. It's not like I was in the room when any of this happened, but it does seem to be this sort of like turning the energy of the thing onto him a little bit. Yeah. It happens with, you know, we'll talk, we'll get to Dylan Thomas and all of that, but, but, um, and it happens again, not too later because his friends, Florence and Bain, who he lives with for a while in Detroit until they he freaks them out and he they kick him out. Um, at one point, they were even like they were jamming their door closed with a chair, and yeah. it, while he was like sleeping in the other room because he was going to creep in and who knows what was going to happen, you know. So, um, uh, but they remain friends. John Berryman, he's working too. He's kind of working too hard, and and this is the thing of of his life. We see this pattern really starting here. He will, if he can't write poetry, you know, he's teaching too much to 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 be writing a lot of poetry. He sort of goes insane. He drinks too much. He doesn't eat. He isolates. Now, if the poetry is going well. He also isolates and drinks too much and forgets to eat. <laughs> it sort of doesn't matter. Like, it, like creatively, things are going well. Okay, great. I'm going to slowly destroy myself. Um, I don't have time to write poetry. Okay, great. I'm going to slowly destroy myself. It, it's, it, it's, it's like there, there, is this, there is this element of like, and I say this with all sympathy. Like, I understand. I, I get it. But there is a part of me that times, like in his later on, you're like, Berryman, what do you want, man? Like, <laughs> yeah, you got every, you've got 
eh, okay, nobody has everything, but like, what do you need? Right. It seems like it's pretty good, actually. You know, as right. time goes on, it's like your peers think you're talented. You've you've got a you've got a you're married. You you're making enough money. Like, what 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 else? What else is there? Well, and, you know, there's the you know the story about what happened after the death of Robert Frost, right? Do we want to? Oh, uh, you know, I don't know if I took a note of that. Yeah. So when Robert Frost dies, Berryman becomes very sort of obsessive about the hierarchy of American poets. And he becomes convinced that he needs to know where he places in the hierarchy. He's always afraid, and I don't know when we'll get to Robert Lowell or not, Mm -hmm. but he's always afraid that everybody's going to be comparing him to Lowell. So he's he writes these letters to to other friends saying, man, now that Frost is dead, it's just me and Cal, right? right. Cal and I are duking it out for being the best poet in America. I mean, yeah. that just sort of like encapsulates exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. There's always the step, the next striving moment is always just around the corner. It's not that I win the Pulitzer Prize or that I'm respected as an instructor or that I win the National Book Award. These things are just, you know, they're they're just stepping stones to to that sense of needing to be paramount. Yeah. Right. The The greatest. Yeah. 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 And it's, yeah, that striving is, and and you can see that that's, kind of poisoning in him and i think that's part of why when he's not writing he gets so bad because well sh- clearly he can't be the greatest poet in the world if he's not even writing any poems right so like you know he's just sort of just dis- ends up destroying himself so um the sad part about this friendship with bain and florence i, I hope i'm pronouncing that right is it bain, bain campbell um is in 1940 um Bain dies. Bain dies of cancer. Um, and I thought maybe this would be a good time to read this dream song 127. And if you wanted to do that, sure. Jason. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. So this is Dream Song 127, which has the drop title. Again, his friend's death made the man sit still. Again, his friend's death made the man sit still and freeze inside. His daughter won first prize. His wife scowled over at him. It seemed to be Halloween. His friend's death had been a judged suicide, which draggles a trail longer than Henry's chill, longer than his loss, and longer than the letter that he wrote that day to the widow to find out what the hell had happened thus. All souls converge upon a hopeless moat tonight as though the throngs of souls and hopeless pain rise up to say they cannot care, to say they abide whatever is to come. My air is flung with souls which will not stop, and among them hangs a soul that has not died and refuses to come home. Woo! Yeah, that was not, that was good. Yes, I think, and, and this just reminds me, your reading of them reminds me how much these poems sort of demand to be read aloud rather than just reading them on the page. I think you'll get some of what's going on reading them on the page, but but really reading them aloud and, and putting some putting some oomph into them, I think, makes all the difference. That's that's I 
John Berryman, especially when he gets to the dream songs, that's, I think it's all part of, it's all part of it. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I want to, I want to draw our, our attention because, you know, both dream songs are dealing with this concept of Henry, which is Berryman's yeah. sort of alter ego. And I'm sure we're going to get there, but people are probably confused listening. Yeah. Henry? yeah. yeah. So he creates this alter ego personality that, even though it obviously is a version of him, he tells interviewers that it's not him. It's a fictionalized version of a person. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but right, the, right. The reason I point this out is I think that it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Brad, in terms of names. Because we were talking about sort of his mother changing her name from Martha to Jill and sort of this idea that you can change your name and become this sort of fictionalized version of yourself is at the heart of so much of the dream songs that I think there's something from Berryman's childhood and early adulthood that he saw and is wrestling with in the poetry of when he's in his forties and fifties. Nice. Yes. I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's very well put. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I want to, we need to stress that, that we're reading these dream songs. The dream songs book is it's his book of poetry. That's that was sort of most well-regarded and, and most, I would say commonly read now won him the Pulitzer, but in the time we're at in his biography, in the early 40s, he's not there yet. He hasn't even conceptualized it yet. Um, he gets, I think his first book of poems is published in, I had it here, I think it's like 1941 or so. Um, he has he has a book just that's just called um just just called poems. Um and you know, sold a little bit or whatever, but he's clearly he's he hasn't reached the he hasn't reached the heights of of the dream songs yet. Um back to the biography. Um, so 1940, uh Van Campbell dies. Uh, Berryman, you know, he falls apart physically as he as he does so many times. Um, he does a really good job teaching. He's actually very well regarded by his dean, I believe. I don't have it here, but his dean says something like, you know, this is the best lecturer I've ever had is, is John Berryman. So so he's able to manage the classroom clearly, even though he can't kind of he can't you know, he's, he's becoming an alcoholic. I think he's probably, by the time he's in Wayne state, I think you or Wayne university, I think you could probably say that he's an alcoholic at this point. Um, though it's a yeah. long time before he admits it himself. Yeah. Um, 1940. So he leaves Wayne university and he goes to Harvard, <laughs> which uh, he's, uh, that's great. Good for you, bud. I don't, you know, um, <laughs> as another Wayne state grad, I tell you what, when I walked out of there, Harvard wasn't taking my calls, but, um, <laughs> well, this okay. was sort of one of the things that we talked about where he just knows people at the right time. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. he's unhappy with exposition. Right. He's able to sort of call in a a call to someone. And, yeah. and the other thing is, is that he's not when he goes to Harvard or when he goes to Iowa or any of these places, they're not hiring him on as a full time professor. That's either. true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. essentially, not that that concept really existed in the 40s and 50s, but his acting is sort of an adjunct within these positions and being paid per class but it's because he knows at the exact moment to contact the right people in order to get these jobs yeah 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 exactly and yeah so he's he this is the thing is like he he later on he he, he kind of ruined some of these friendships but clearly people liked him and wanted to help him out um i imagine this is the thing especially early 
he was probably a hoot to go to the bar with, honestly. You know what I mean? He, he was probably a lot of fun. And then so you can kind of see how well he's a talented guy and he appears to be a good lecturer. Every time he, get, he, he does a lecture, people love it. So, yeah, let's let's bring him on at Harvard. We'll find a position for him. Um, one thing I want to hit here around this time, World War Two is heating up. He still has this relationship with Beryl. Um, mostly by correspondence, though, though there's a period where they're writing each other like every six weeks or two months or something like that. So it's not this constant letter writing thing. Um, she does eventually now she goes from being an actress to being a war nurse to eventually working in some unspecified capacity for British intelligence. So I'm just kind of interesting. So she's not going to leave the war, essentially. Um, she does end up um she does end up writing him a letter saying, you know, we're not doing this. I, I don't think I'm ever going to get married, you know, and Berryman says, okay. And he immediately proposes to this girl, this woman, Eileen Simpson. <laughs> He's like waiting for this letter. And he, I got the sense, and this is another part where I got frustrated with Berryman as, as, a, as a person where I was like, let this poor barrel woman go, man. Like you're never... Right. You're never going to do what you need to do to make this happen. You're not going to do it. So just let her go and tell her, like, like just be a grown up for, for 30 seconds, man. Um, and he never does. He waits for Beryl to do it. So, um, so, you know, things with Eileen are pretty good at the beginning. He describes her as good, sensitive, intelligent, kind, and beautiful. Um, of course, he's going to end up breaking her heart. Um one thing that's interesting and something I kind of was tracking through the biography is his religiosity. At this time, he declares himself, he considers himself an atheist, saying he sees not a shred, and this is a quote from Berryman, sees not a shred of reason for believing that anyone or anything is out there. Um, and they have a Catholic ceremony anyway. He tells the priest, well, I'm just a, kind of a lapsed Catholic. He doesn't, you know, even tell him he's a, he's an out and out atheist, but yeah, at this, at this time he's, he's full bore. There's, there's nothing out there. Um, whereas later as you know, like I said, when we started, the, started the, the, the podcast, we read a poem that is 11 addresses to the Lord. It's got a little bit of irony in it, but it's a person trying to believe it's a tr person trying to have a relationship with, you know, a higher power. So he does, he does circle back around. Um, one thing that was kind of interesting is 1942, he gets, has this wedding and a lot of his friends can't attend. Some of them are in Europe fighting the war. Others are, you know, taken up in some capacity similar. Um, uh, and he's not, he gets four F'd, um, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit in a little bit. Um, in Harvard, he meets one of his very good friends, a poet with a reputation for a, a similar reputation as Berryman in terms of his yeah. personal life, I would say, right? You can kind of see why these two guys got, got together, but uh, Delmore Schwartz, who's a which is a name you don't hear. I don't think I ever heard it personally, to be honest, until doing this research. Oh, wow. he's, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Um, he's now he started the partisan review, right? Or co-founded the partisan oh, review. Yeah, okay. yeah. So so they become friends. Delmore would um would precede Berryman in death, you know, a couple decades later, but they were they were lifelong friends. Delmore Schwartz, um, he we did our last episode we did was on the Chelsea Hotel. Oh, Delmore oh, Schwartz man. was yeah, was a big figure at the Chelsea Hotel and actually died in the Chelsea Hotel. My understanding from the reading is like nobody discovered his body for two days. 
he'd been sort of spiraling into craziness for for a while um and then sort of ostracized those around him but um a sort of a sad case um there is a dream song related to delmore sports and and maybe you jason could read that dream song 149 i'd love to yes thank you dream song 149 this world is gradually becoming a place where i do not care to be anymore can delmar die i don't suppose in all them years a day ever went by without a loving thought for him. Well a day in the brightness of his promise, unsustained, I saw him through the mist of the actual, blazing with insight, warm with gossip, through all our Harvard days, when both of us were just becoming known. I got him out of a police station once in Washington, the word is T-R-E-F, and grief can astray for tears. I imagine you have heard the terrible news that Delmar Schwartz is dead, miserably and alone in New York. He sang me a song. I am the Brooklyn poet Delmar Schwartz. Harms and the child I sing, two parents torts when he was young and gift strong. Nice. That's, that's, whew. So we see this a lot. We see Berryman, because the, the dream songs is such a, such a powerful vehicle you see that he's able to he's able to do this with it he's able to write these elegies for his friends and we'll, we'll we've got a couple more but, but he's able to kind of tackle all sorts of things personal extra personal um just because of the way these these poems are, are sort of structured do you know what tref means in that poem t-r-e-f i do not know what tref okay means. i have no idea <laughs> i should have looked it up maybe just, we can we yeah. can wallow in our ignorance. It doesn't doesn't make it even either any less of a striking poem. No, no, certainly um, not, certainly not. But I just saw that and I was like, you know, I don't know what that means. Uh, I feel like, yeah, that's 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 powerful stuff. Um, so, 1942, Berryman and or 1943, Berryman and Eileen are in in Boston. Um, she ends up taking a job for Liberty Mutual. She, she, you know, she would work. She has another interesting job that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, Berryman, interestingly, heading into 1943, makes the resolution that he is going to better know Christ. So we're talking about this religious journey. He went from getting married in 1942, not believing in anything. And then 1943, something happens. Who knows what? The biography doesn't quite say. Perhaps somebody out there knows. <laughs> um, but he makes a conscious decision that he's going to better know Christ. Perhaps it's for my for Eileen's sake. Um, it's not not entirely clear. Um, his book of uh, called Poems had come, had come out in 1942. Um, now he loses his job at Harvard mostly because there's a downturn in enrollments due to the war. So you know a lot of the college age men are overseas, um, and you know. It, Going to going to college to learn poetry wasn't necessarily the top of everyone's list in 1942. So, and he was already kind of Berryman was already kind of an edge case anyway. It's not like he was a tenured professor, you know, running a department or anything like that. So, so he they give him the boot. He calls in Mark Van Doren, see if he can help him. You know, he's 30 years old. He's had one minor book of poetry out. He doesn't have a full position. He had the Cambridge thing that was cool. He's made some friends. He's won some awards here and there, but nothing huge has really happened. You know, it, it, 
you know, if he died at 30, we wouldn't be doing this podcast episode about him, to be frank. Right. So he's not he hasn't quite done it yet. So that and we have to think about it in his obsession with status that this is starting to weigh on him. This age of 30 is coming up. You know, what am I going to be? Am I going to be able to do anything? You're thinking about Dylan Thomas, what Dylan Thomas had accomplished, what W.H. Auden, who he also knew had accomplished, what even Van Doren had accomplished. Right. Um. So, but between Harvard and his next gig, it gets a little dicey. He tries to sell encyclopedias at one point, it lasts about two days. He tries to get a gig with um, Time Magazine and the stuff that he writes, they sort of laugh out the door. It's just that they're, they're not going to publish John Berryman, uh, John Berryman work, not, not his poetry, but like a column or whatever. They're not going to publish that in Time Magazine. Um, he lives, they move back to New York and he's living with his mother she's getting hounded by the IRS. That, so that situation's getting kind of dicey. It's not clear exactly what she owes and why, and I don't know exactly how that panned out, but it's, it's, a, little, it's a little dicey. Um, he tries to sell uh, his services to write a literary biography of Shakespeare and a, uh, or a translation of King Lear. And that would be an ongoing conversation for years, but at this time, and nothing quite happens with it. He ends up taking a job as a Catholic prep uh, at, at a Catholic prep high school, um, which is for him is hell. Uh, <laughs> he actually tells people not to tell anyone that he worked there. <laughs> so it's just pretty, it's just interesting. You know, he, he has, he's had these, you know, he's went to Harvard and he's for, for us now, I think we think of a person went taught at Harvard, like, well, they're set, right? That's going to lead one thing right into the next. He does have this downturn. But then he is rescued by the literary critic R.P. Blackmer and given a job offer at Princeton. So um, so Wayne University, uh, uh, Columbia, Cambridge, Wayne University, Harvard, Princeton. It's not too bad. You only got one clunker in the bunch, really. Uh, and that's the school I went to. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so at Princeton, it's pretty tricky. So at Princeton, he starts and, and he's teaching over, it said in the biography, 110 Navy personnel um, who were engaged in the wartime armed services training program. So these aren't people who necessarily mm, want to be studying Shakespeare, maybe. Um, so it's probably, I imagine this is a pretty tough teaching situation. It's an unrelenting schedule. Um, he's 4F. A lot of these guys he's teaching aren't a whole lot younger than him. You know, he's not quite 30 yet. So they're all in their probably their their late, you know, early 20s, maybe. Um, he but he's 4F and they're all gonna go over and fight the war. Um, so I think there was a certain degree of embarrassment there, especially because though it's at Princeton, it wasn't all that prestigious of a job. Um one thing that was interesting, though, I thought this was interesting, is he developed some friendships with the uh, within the Institute of Advanced Studies. And for people who don't know, this is a thing that started off, it's sort of Princeton adjacent. And members of this included Oppenheimer, um, Einstein, and a whole slew of physicists and mathematicians up to the present day, but certainly within that sort of famous Einstein class that people sort of feel like they're familiar with. Eileen worked, um, I couldn't figure out what her position actually was, but Berryman said that she met Einstein every day precisely at 1030 in the morning while she worked there. So again, an interesting social milieu, like he knows Dylan Thomas, 
I don't know if he met Einstein or not, but his wife certainly knew Einstein. It's just an interesting, interesting place to put him. But but, you know, he's also he also like later knows Allen Ginsberg. Right. Not that they were close, but just in terms of positioning him, it's he's in he fits in this interesting space historically. Um, uh, Princeton, he 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 manages to kind of get a fresh start um, and he's in Princeton. Right? He does this thing again where he's like, OK, he'd been drinking and now he's going to start over. He's going to do the thing. He's, he's going to be a good husband, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I kept thinking about this, this but I kept thinking about this uh, kind of trite new agey saying, which is that hurt people hurt people. Right. And I think it's as kind of corny as it sounds, maybe. I think that's kind of a Berryman situation. It's like he is a little bit of a megalomaniac, but he's not a he's not a sociopath. Like I think he does in the end care about other people's feelings. They're just not at the top of his priorities. I I, I completely agree with that. I yeah. So so he does things and then in sort of in retrospect, he's like, oh yeah, you know, I really can see why. You know, Eileen left me or, you know, whatever it is, it, it does make sense to him. And then I think even the drinking kind of becomes a cycle around that, too. You know, you kind of you kind of drink and then make mistakes and then drink. So you don't think about your mistakes and then make more mistakes. And it's a, it becomes something of a cycle. I think that's a pretty common um, I think that's a pretty common pattern in, in, in problem drinkers, for sure. Um, I wanted to read one thing just to give you a sense of like. Again, his sort of scholarly attitude, the sort of things that he's interested in at this time. This is stuff that he's reading while he's um, at Princeton, um, while he's teaching. Um, and this is a tenth. This is when they're trying to be cheap. So his biggest thing, he, he often had money trouble, but the biggest thing he spent money on other than booze was books. He would just buy a ridiculous amount of expensive books. <laughs> Whether he read them or not, he probably did read a lot of them, but, but he was buying them at a rate which was far exceeded his ability to read them. However, um, this is some of the stuff he was interested in during this Princeton time. Um, Aquinas, Kierkegaard, Louis, uh, Louis Aragon's recent po- book of war poems, um, Arnold Toynbee, uh, Werner Jaeger, Brooks and Henry Adams, Dante, Egyptian history, Bulgarian history, um, and then assorted poems, plays, novels, biographies, philosophy, logic, anthropology, neurology, God knows what, hundreds actually of books. That's a quote from him, that last bit. He read James Agee's Let Us Now Praise Famous Men and found its prose standards so exact, exact that the book made him feel as if everything he'd ever written were a fraud. Um, so yeah, so that's 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 it too. He's writing these poems, but he's also reading at this pace pretty much for his whole life. Uh, other until things get you know, uh, until things get later, and, and the alcohol gets worse and worse and worse. But this is the kind of this is the kind of guy that we're dealing with. Um, now here's the thing: the Princeton gig, like the Harvard gig, like the Wayne University gig, doesn't last. Um, he gets he's got to figure out. So, so, you know, not, he's not there that long. He's got to figure something else out. 1943, he gets a grant from the Rockefeller foundation to write um, a partial translation and book of research on King Lear. Um, He's still able to have um, an office at the Princeton campus, uh, even though he's not technically uh, employed by Princeton. And it's funny, they called it the ball office. And apparently it's like, 
down in some tunnel, some weird tunnel system. And to get there, he decided the easiest thing was he would climb in the window every day. I just thought this image was kind of cool of him sort of like climbing down to the window. He works on this King Lear thing supposedly all day and then climbs back out of the window at night, um, you know, down in the basement where nobody really knows he exists sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's it's just it's just funny, like the situations that he sort of finds himself in. Now, the King Lear book, and maybe you can correct me. I don't think that ever really comes out or anything, right? So there's. He's working on the trend. He's working on his version of Lear. And then another version of Lear comes out in the middle of him producing it. And he accepts the fact that that version is the definitive version of Lear scholarship. So then he drops the, he drops the production of it. Right. Right. Which that's frustrating, right? Like, <laughs> yeah yeah you know this king lear has been around for hundreds of years and then then literally <laughs> while you're working on it somebody else sort of steals steals your thunder um one thing happens sort of around this time because because he's he's not necessarily the king lear thing sort of the the money from the rockefeller foundation sort of saves him financially but he's trying to write poems at night but again we see that when he's not allowed to focus almost exclusively on the writing of poetry, he always kind of, he 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 will always degenerate um, into sort of his worst behaviors. And we talked before about his friend Holiday. Here is a little story I've got about um, Berryman and uh, Holiday's wife. This is from the Paul Mariani bio. Um, he also mentioned Berryman also mentioned that he and Eileen had a visit from Holiday's wife Harriet who had come down from New York to spend part of the day. But Harriet had also written Holiday to say she and Berryman had had dinner one night in New York, and that afterwards she'd invited him up to her apartment for a nightcap, where he'd proceeded to down several and then confessed to her that she'd become, quote, an area of conflict for him. Suddenly he had run into her bedroom, calling after her that he planned to stay there until she joined him. It had taken all of her wit to get him out of the apartment. So this is the kind of this is the kind of dude we're dealing with. It's definitely like in all, you know, in all in to Harriet, it's just like, this is my this is my um husband's good friend from college, and I happen to be in town. You know what? Why don't you come up and we'll have a drink and you know, this, you know, total socially polite thing to do. And Berryman turns it into this like borderline rape scene. Uh yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, I don't know how many times I don't want to hit that note too much, but I also don't want to leave it uh, unhit, I guess. Um, right. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty reprehensible. Um, it, back thinking in the bio, kind of flash forward 1946, um, the war is over. Berryman has managed to string together fellowships and grants, short-term teaching gigs and all that. And they managed to, to kind of weather the storm of the war. Um, just as he's about to kind of hit a wall again, he was going to take a job up at University of Rochester. Bla R.P. Blackmer, who we mentioned before, um, starts a new creative writing program at Princeton. Now, you know, you're working on your MFA. I've got an MFA. Kevin's got an MFA. There's creative writing programs all over the place now. In 1946, there weren't all that many of them. I don't know exactly how many, but Iowa had started in the 30s. There was Princeton. There were maybe a handful of others around the country. People weren't going. If you were going to be a writer and you were going to be in the in, in the academy, you were going to study what we now would call English, 
basically right where you write read books and write criticism and then if you manage to write a book on the side you know a novel on the side or something good for you but that's kind of how it worked up until that point yeah so they're gonna get they're gonna get Berryman in on this hey that's cool um it's Berryman didn't really want to be a college professor honestly he didn't want to have a PhD and all that so this is actually kind of a good opportunity for a guy like him um it's interesting to me as a slightly conspiratorial minded person. So I don't know if you're familiar with all the stuff that's been talked about, about Peter Engel and his starting the university, the Iowa's writing workshop. Oh, Kevin comes in at the right time. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I know what you're referring to in yeah. terms of intergovernmental organizations, correct? Right, right, right. Exactly. So, you know, there's, yeah, there's some indication that the intel that the U.S. intelligence had um, a fair amount of influence on the starting of these writing workshops. Now, the fact that that the Institute for Advanced Studies, which R.P. Blackmer had some association with, is funded also partially funded by the U.S. government, and then Blackmer starts the creative writing program. It's just another thing. If someone wanted to connect the dots. <laughs> <laughs> this is what no, but this is why I love you guys. Yeah. This, this is why you need to go down. Nobody's that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nobody's connecting the dots. Nobody's <laughs> connecting the dots. I'm connecting the dots, Kevin. Okay. I'm gonna do okay. it. Yeah. You, yeah. So you, you know what? Yeah, go. Yeah. Well, and then as soon as Peter Engel, who starts up the Iowa Writers Workshop, finds out that that um Berryman is involved at Princeton, he's like, You should come to Iowa. Now, he doesn't do it right away. But he, he does eventually. And that's one of my, I don't know if it's favorite, one of the darker stories of Berryman's life, honestly, is his time at Iowa. But these connections are very just interesting to me. Like, why is the Institute for Advanced Studies, a guy who's doing that, why is he interested in starting a creative writing program? I don't know enough about Blackmer to say exactly why, but it's it makes me raise my eyebrow for sure. So which my response is is that blackmer's wikipedia article is very short so <laughs> play into that right 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 what did he have to say you know, spooks he, he, they're all spooks <laughs> he's a glowy well blackmer could be a glowy for sure kevin well and and uh. and and Eileen worked for the Institute of Advanced Studies, right? She was going there every day. She's sitting there with, with Einstein. Who knows what she was working on? It's all just, it's all just very interesting. Um, now, kind of moving off that, there's <laughs> something else happens at Princeton that's important. He meets two very important figures, and Robert Lowell and Randall, how do you say this, Gerald? Randall okay. Gerald. Okay, what can you tell us? Uh, and I guess either, either one of them, both of them, what can you tell us about these guys? So Lowell is considered the other main father of what's called the confessional poetry movement of the 1950s and 1960s, which is also sort of the poetry movement that in opposition to the New York School of the Beats, right? Mm -hmm. So in mid-century, there are three competing poetry movements. The, the New York School, which is uh, Keith Raxwath and... Uh, in John O'Hara, and then the beats, of course, goes without saying with with Ferlinghetti and, and Ginsberg and, and Kerouac, and then the confessional school of poetry. So Lowell and Jarrell are, are considered part of this idea of the confessional school of poetry, which comes out of this idea, which we'll talk a little bit more later 
in terms of Berryman with taking the dreams and the time that you spend with your therapist and turning that into a form of, of poetry mm-hmm. where you're reflecting on your personal life and you're not necessarily holding anything back. You fictionalize very little to none of what you're dealing with. Or if you do fictionalize it, it's so barely fictionalized in the poetry that it's just this representation of the personal. A lot of people, when when they talk about the confessional school, think that it's just writing poems about your everyday life. Mm-hmm. And just like, which is very close to sort of that, you know, stereotype of the teenager in their bedroom. Like, and that's not what the confessional school was about. It was about using the poetic techniques, particularly of the early 20th century, late 19th century, and instilling it into talking about things that were more personal, more mundane, more coming out of everyday life. Um, So Lowell is one of Berryman's um, compatriots in this movement, as as is Jarrell, but he's constantly battling with them because they get out of the gate earlier than he does. In fact, Lowell around this time has already won the Pulitzer Prize, and this sort of is... Um, puts Berryman under the magnifying glass of his own, well, when is this going to happen for me? I'm just as talented as these other two are, and they seem to be doing more of this thoughtful, you know, introspective work. Why are people respecting them? Mm-hmm. And, and even though he's very friendly with both of them, he always sorts of keeps them at arm's length except when he wants to talk about his extramarital affairs, when they're the two first people that he'll write to talk about his sexual conquest with. Oh, so yeah. there's a really interesting relationship with Jarrell and Lowell. Yeah. And yeah, and they're, they were, they're friends. Yeah. But, but you're right. They're they're. It feels like it's difficult. I think Robert Lowell at one point would say something like um, he was about Barry would say something like he's a very, easy guy to be friends with but something about him makes you glad that he lives in another city another state, yes. yeah another state or whatever it's like yeah that's the they they kind of respected each other but 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 in 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 Jarrell and robert lowell i mean they're the level of stability that they have is really only relative to berryman i mean both of these guys had their own their own troubles um uh, i know robert lowell eventually had pretty serious depressive episodes and 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 would 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 kind of only stabilize once he started taking lithium i believe yes, that's correct yeah and then randall jarrell you know this is art of darkness so i i just zoom in on their dark stuff <laughs> um, i did read some of their poetry along the way and particularly robert lowell i'm quite impressed with so i'm there, i'm gonna read lord lord weary's castle i think um, oh, which, it, an interesting choice. I would yeah. go with life studies. But, okay. But, okay. But, go, but that's that's not a bad choice. That's that title a- is that title is very compelling to me. Lord <laughs> Weary's Castle. It's just it's very evocative for me. For it's much reason. more. We, we won't go off on bowl, but it's yeah. much more traditional. Oh, is it? Okay. But you've been reading a lot of Yeats, so that's it's true. It's not. It's not. And then Jarrell, of course, may or may not have committed suicide in that strange. Right, right. He got hit by a car, but it, like it seemed like he probably just stepped out in front of it. Right. Yeah. Right. So very strange. So, so of the people yeah. we've met so far that are friends of his and poets, um, 
Delmore Schwartz ends, but his life ends sort of, he's lost his mind in a Chelsea, in the Chelsea hotel, Robert Lowell, you know, he lives a long life, but he struggles for sure. Jarrell may have killed himself. It's not hundred percent clear. Um, the only sane person, well, Dylan Thomas, who we'll get to, the only real person who's got it together is uh, Mark Van Doren, really, <laughs> of all the people we've met so far. Um, uh, yeah, so th- so that's just it's just interesting. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there's something about being a poet that, uh, uh, you know, Berryman would say something about the, you know, American culture is not very kind to poets, and that's why we suffer so much. And I don't think that's completely untrue, you know. Um, I think, I think would, I think Berryman had a little bit of a victimhood complex anyway. But I think those words are also true that that you know America's not very kind to its poets. Um, yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, I wanted to get. This is one thing I wanted to get. So. You know, we have our predilections on this show. One thing that I'm always interested in is seeing when uh, trying to understand in specific detail the nature of something that haunts these artists. And one thing comes out. So um, one summer after he's at Princeton, he goes, uh, he and Eileen go and stay at the summer home of R.P. Blackmer in Harrington, Maine. Um, one thing that's interesting about R.P. Blackmer, he is a uh, in Saul Bellow's novel, I believe, I believe it's humble to gift. There is a snobbish literary critic character who is modeled on R.P. Blackmer, which I just think that's interesting. You're such a snobby snob that you get like <laughs> you become part of one of the great American novels as like the snobby literary critic. Um, but anyway, so Berryman and Eileen go and stay with the Blackmers. Now, the Blackmers also drink heavily. They argue a lot. And this visit isn't all that pleasant. Um, and in fact, it reminds um, Berryman of living with his mother. Um, the, the wife of um, R.P. Blackmer reminds him of his mother. I'm going to read this thing because I think it tells us something about the nature of Berryman's demons. So this is in Harrington, Maine at the Blackmers. Uh, one night, unable to sleep, Berryman found himself up and reading long after everyone else had gone to bed. As he read, he could sense the shadows looming over him again. It had been 20 years to the month since a scene like what had occurred with the Blackmers had taken place in Tampa. He stared out the upstairs windows, across the fields, across the bluffs toward the Atlantic. There was a huge, nearly human shadow out there, and it seemed to be waiting for him. The offshore island of Petit Manan. He could feel something tugging at him to cross the lawn toward the bluffs and then down into the water where he would begin walking out toward the thing that had been waiting so many years for him to meet it. Some terrible presence he had managed to keep below the surface for 20 years had been triggered by Helen's assaults on Blackmer. Blackmer had lashed back, but Berryman could see that Helen was a woman with a tongue as sharp and destructive as his mother's. Only with first light was Berryman able to doze off. Later that day, he told Eileen that he had had a strong premonition of the darkness tugging at him and of his terrifying yet comforting wish to yield to it and simply let go. It was time they realized that they both got out of there. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, you can see the whole thing with his mother, the thing with his father, this looming darkness. Um, Berryman was prone to nightmares. He was prone to insomnia. Um, You know, there were streaks of time and I think it all goes in with um, the alcohol. And I think there's no coincidence that he wrote a book called the dream songs. Um, 
you know, that's all sort of there. One thing is interesting about him bailing out on uh, on the Blackmers is he ends up going to stay with the Lowells. And this is where their relationship really takes off. He sort of like got, has to go someplace. And so he goes down to a place called De- uh, Demara Scotta Mills, where the Lowells are summering because all of these people are, of course, summering somewhere. Uh, they don't have to they don't have to work like the rest of us. No, they don't have to work. They... <laughs> it's true. You're right. You're right. OK, so there's a. Now, okay, so things are going reasonably well, right? So, so one thing he meets he, he meets up with Robert Lowell, and Lowell notices how obsessed Berryman is becoming with broken syntax, and this is an important thing that's going to lead to his eventual revelations in confessional poetry, Berryman's revelations. But it's kind of starting at this point, but because partially because things at Princeton are going reasonably well, and I think partially because of these relationships with Lowell and Jarrell, he's starting to see peers things go kind of okay for a while. The suicidal ideation at least kind of reaches a low ebb, even if the drinking, uh, the drinking doesn't. And this is the thing about drinking a lot. If you're hanging out with other people who are drinking a lot all the time, it's not as obvious that it's a problem, right? It's when you're by yourself or you or whatever, but like if it's you and your buddies, that doesn't really seem like a problem so much. So I think there's part of that going on, but Berryman needs this one other element to his life. And in February 1947, he meets, quote, Chris uh, at an Arnold Toynbee lecture. Um, and this becomes an affair that he has on Eileen. Um, it's, you know, this isn't the first time he's done such a thing. Uh, well, it is with Eileen. He's apparently was faithful to her up until this point. Uh after five years um but he kind of can't resist he can't help himself jason like you were saying she's married so they're sort of on the same page um the trick here is the the thing that's 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 i think uh important to understand about the the kind of crisis this causes is his poetry at this time with this affair with chris is all sonnets about chris yeah, he can't share them with anybody because he's a married man, right? So, I mean, he does, I think, share them a little bit, but he can't He can't be publishing them in journals. So there's this, on the one hand, on the outside, he's not doing really anything poetically for a while. And on the inside, he's furiously writing like a sonnet per day for a while. Um, and they're, 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 they're lovely work. I mean, they're not, I don't think they're as impactful quite to me as the dream songs, but they do seem to be a progression in his style, I would say. Um, I, what else, what, what do you, can you tell us about the sonnets, Jason? So they're traditional Petrarchian sonnets. So he's writing in a 15th century form. They're, they're rhymers. They rhyme, but they rhyme in a way in which the rhyme is not completely um, the central perspective of the poem. They don't rhyme in the way that Shakespearean sonnets do, which have a much more... Um, present rhyme scheme. We're so much more used to Shakespearean sonnets in the 21st century that we can sort of tell that buildup. Petrarchian sonnet or the Italian sonnet, it's sometimes mm-hmm. called, is um, is a little bit more sneaky with its rhyming. And I think that you make a, a good, um, this is an interesting point, Brad, and sort of him pushing at the extents of what he can do as a writer. He's a very structured, very formal writer um, until around this time in his career. And what's interesting is, is that these sonnets end up being published 
in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. He adds about four or five extra sonnets to the end of the group in order to get them into a cohesive whole. And they match more with the sort of sonic palette that he's using in the dream songs than what he is doing during the 40s. So that's really profound of you to sort of see that. Although these aren't, you're right, they're not as good as the dream songs. The dream songs are where he's spitting it out of the park almost every single time. This is a stepping stone for him to get there. And he was aware of that. So he wanted to make sure that these poems didn't sort of die on the vine, which is the reason why he brought them back into... into existence in the mid 60s yeah yeah no they're they're quite they're quite good i've, I've been kind of picking at them a little bit and I, i've read more dream songs than sonnets but they are quite good I, can you we've got some there in the notes maybe number 83 could you could you give a read of that sonnet 83 impossible to speak to her and worse to keep on silent silent hypocrite bound for my kindness on my lack of it solely to strength you crumble are you nurse by not being or being with me, curse. This kindness tricks her to think bit by bit. We will be more together, better, sit, the poor time out and then the good rehearse. When neither my fondness nor my pity can, oh, no more bend me to Esther with love, glad in the sad eyes my lost eyes have seen with such and so long ache to unman when she calls small and grieving i must move the horror and beauty of your eyes burn between yeah that's that's good (laughs) (laughs) i really like i yeah and i hadn't read i'd read through that one just to kind of familiarize myself with it but i hadn't read it aloud and oh that makes so much difference yeah these these are lovely and and yeah, it's interesting to think about him having this affair with this woman, this attractive graduate student, but married and not able to say anything about it. There were there were like some times when it got close to getting caught. Um, I want to read one of these and then maybe we'll read another sonnet. There was a uh, they were kind of Chris ends up being kind of friends with the Berrymans generally. They're all kind of part of the same social milieu. Um but let me just read this. It's so funny. Um, a few days later, I don't know after what, as the Behrmans preparing, pre- were preparing to go to a party at John Malcolm Brennan's, Eileen received a breezy letter from Chris, and the entire weight of the summer suddenly slammed down on Berryman. As he watched Eileen reading the letter in the car, he thought he was going to throw up. Later, at the party, feeling sorry for himself and bitter toward Eileen, he began drinking heavily. By the time the party moved to another, another couple's for dinner, Berryman was drunk and seething. So when the talk turned to Eileen's becoming a psych- psychoanalyst, someone threw out the barbed question of how she as a Catholic could reconcile Freud with her religious beliefs. Suddenly, Berryman too was attacking her for trying to maintain that Catholicism and psychoanalysis, uh, psychoanalysis could ever be reconciled. Eileen was hurt and confused. Um, I imagine Eileen was hurt and confused a lot of the time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that just kind of shows like, so, okay, he's feeling guilty about this whole thing. He almost gets caught, but he doesn't get caught. He drinks to try and recover from it. Then he turns into a jerk and then it makes it all worse. And then she's confused and hurt. He's they're alienated from each other. The affair seems to be more attractive. Um, all of that. So, um, um, so 
anyway, thought that was kind of a good uh, a good little thing. Um, maybe read, if you could, Jason, read sonnet number 19. Sonnet number 19. You sailed in sky high with your speech askew, but marvelous, and talked like mad for hours. Slamming and blessing, you transported us. I never heard you talk so, and I knew humbler and more proud you each time undo my Kit Kat, but to cram it with these powers, you bear and bury suddenly late then as your best burnt offering took me back with you. No jest, but joyceless truth. I burn and led burning to slaughter passion like a sieve disbands my circling blood. The priestess slights. Remorse does not suit you at all, he said, rightly, but what he raged and might forgive, I shook for lawless, empty, without rights. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, that's intense. (laughs) And we're we're picking up on him really listening to sound again with that bear and berry that's not necessarily super common for mid-century poetry, but mm-hmm. he's building into these influences and making the influences his own. So Shakespeare and Gerard Manley Hopkins and Yeats are always at his forefront of these earlier poets who are so interested in particularly consonants and assonance and alliteration. And he's really coming into his own as that type of writer in, in particularly in this sonnet. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And I appreciate your insights on that. That's that really actually does help me understand what's going on there a lot more. <laughs> I, that's that's fantastic. Um, so, OK, so the sonnets, he's got the sonnets. I think the next sort of landmark for him artistically is the dispossessed, which comes out in 1948. No, but it's, oh, go ahead, Kevin. Everything our friends said here is uh, true. Like you're 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 not. No, no, this is, it takes, it takes, you have to to be analyzing stuff line by line to really understand not only what, what's going on, but what's good about it. And and then later what Berryman's actually innovating on, right. You know, correct. Yeah. 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 You have to, you have to get angry about poetry. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm, I'm down with that. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? No, Um, No. you know, you have, you have to go, you have to go Kanye. You have to go like bit. Yeezy. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Berryman did yeah. that a little bit. Berryman was a little Yeezy, I think. Uh, Nobody's, you know. Yeah. That's an interesting, never mind, Brad. I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in that. We may pick up on that. At, okay. another- I mean, you just, you just have got to go hard. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm sorry. No, no right. why are you like there's no reason to be sorry. I live that that's my life, my friend. Yeah. My <laughs> man. My man. This guy gets it. Yeah, he does. We're, you know, we we'll talk it. about another person who's extremely mad about about poetry, Ezra Pound. <laughs> oh, I tried to segue. I hope that was a decent segue. No, listen, Brad, we're going to we're going to Pound Town, man. We are eventually gonna do the Ezra Pound episode. Dude, we have I do to not, do the Ezra Pound yeah, episode. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But John Berryman befriends Ezra Pound. Now, Ezra Pound is is uh in his 60s when this happens. And Ezra Pound <laughs> is in the criminally insane ward at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, DC at this time when John Berryman goes to visit him. Um 
it's it's all pretty it's just pretty interesting i don't we're not going to say a lot about ezra pound other than that this relationship existed um in the late 40s berryman is kind of becoming a known entity with the dispossessed coming out um he a lot of his friends and peers thought it should have won the pulitzer it did not but he he's starting to get involved into a different circle of borderline literary celebrity um he uh in, I think it's in 1948, he gets invited to a Life magazine photo shoot with Delmore Schwartz, uh, Jarrell, Marianne Moore, Elizabeth Bishop, W.H. Uh, Auden, Gore Vidal, Tennessee Williams, and some others. He kind of storms out before they actually take the photo for some reason, but um, probably because Jarrell was there maybe at that time. They might have been having a snip at the moment, uh, <laughs> even though they generally were friends. Um, but, you know, that's that's. Um, you know, that's pretty heady company. Um, certainly at th- that time, some of these people were on the ascendancy rather than this. They're sort of cemented in their legacy the way we think of them now. But that's quite a crowd to be running with all of a sudden in his personal life. He's once again degenerating. So he's having a moment when when, you know, there's some attention coming out around the dispossessed. And then Eileen starts having health issues, um, which eventually I think they require surgery. She's having disc degeneration issues. Um, and then Berryman with her sort of ill and out of the picture starts having an affair and having an affair. He feels guilty about it. And then he starts thinking about killing himself again. So it's this cycle that's often he, he sort of sees an opening to, for temptation. He takes advantage of it. He feels terrible about it. And then he makes he gets drunk, you know, and, and, it, and it just kind of spirals down until eventually he you know, sort of bottoms out or gets some good news. And then he's going to revitalize himself and he's going to make resolutions to be better. This cycle happens through his life, you know, 10 or 12 times, probably. Um, um, one thing, you know, I think, I don't know that we've, we've talked about this too much, <clears throat> but <clears throat> I think it factors into some of these, the way these things go too. So we talked about the fact that he's sort of status obsessed and, and he's jealous. I think one thing we didn't quite maybe hit as clearly is and it it gets kind of worse over time to a certain extent he's also a pretty arrogant guy um now later on he would write uh a, a book a book would come out i think posthum posthumously called uh delusions and that was his title um i think part of what he what kept him going was a sort of an arrogant delusion. I mean, you talked about the fact that he's 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 sort of jockeying for position on this the greatest poet American poets. Um, if you even think you're in the running, there's a certain degree of arrogance, right? It requires a certain degree of delusions of grandeur just to 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 think you might be part of that conversation. I think most people, I I mean. I, you know, especially when it's something so subjective as this, I, I think even the most successful writers, a lot of them are probably like, well, I don't know. Some people seem to like it, <laughs> you know, like more, more than I think I'm kind of good. Right. I mean, a lot of people like the last book. That was cool. Uh, whereas, whereas Berryman's like these fools, you don't understand what I'm trying to do. <laughs> well, so, and the other, the title of that other collection is love and fame, love and fame. And right. Right. People were incensed that he would call a group of poetry about like being famous. famous. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, So one thing. So, okay, so in this Princeton period after after dispossessed, you know, he's had this relationship with Chris that that did come to an end uh, kind of um, on its own without the marriage totally ending. Um, 
he gets invited to the Iowa Writers Workshop, and this is in uh, this is 1953. Um, the marriage to Eileen is effectively over, but the divorce isn't final until 1956. They don't have children. It's possible that this was due to a health issue of Eileen's, um, though it wasn't 100 percent clear in the biography. Though though she had had been uh, there was some suggestion that that might have been the case. Um, so okay, so he gets invited to the Iowa's right. Iowa Writers Workshop by Pete Engel, um, right? He's going to get he's going to get um, enlisted into the CIA. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't actually happen on the outside, anyway. Um, but again, okay. So I'm going to read three. Well, let's back up for a second because the Dylan Thomas stuff happens around this time too. So before, right before Iowa, like right before Iowa, Dylan Thomas has his famous. Uh, night at the White Horse Tavern where he says, oh, you know, he drinks 18 drinks and says, oh, I think that's a record. And um, he gets committed to the hospital. You know, the story is he drank himself. He went back to the Chelsea Hotel and, and died. We talked about this literally on our last episode. Just quickly. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah. you know, no, that yeah. he went hard. He did yeah. go hard. He had a bunch of health issues. Anyway, he ends up in the hospital. He's he's in and out of consciousness, um, clearly not doing well. John Berryman is like obsessively calling the hospital about this. Like he is super concerned about it. He's at a party and he's calling the hospital. At one point, he he actually goes to that. He's he's going back and forth to the hospital. He literally, John Berryman, our guy, is, our guy, John Berryman, is like, yes, yes. He is the one who says, "Hey, Dylan Thomas is dead." Like, why isn't there anybody in here? Like he finds Dylan Thomas is in the hospital, but John Berryman finds his body. He goes to see check on him and he's like, Dylan Thomas is dead. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah. 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 It's 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 pretty it's pretty wild. And it's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty wild. And he's, yeah, so he's, now he's had no two poet poet friends of his, Bane Campbell and, and, and Dylan Thomas die, you know, and he's only in a, he's not even 40 yet. Right. So he's you know, he's finding he's finding dead poets. He is. He is. He really. And we're going to we'll give the list of them at some point here. Poets. Yeah. 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 Damn. It's intense. So right after that's that, he so, goes. To, that's so brutal. Right after that, he goes to Iowa. So I'm going to read you three this guy gets it. No, yes. Jason's the man. Guy. This is awesome. We could have done this. Show Yo, without Jason. we're so lucky to have Jason <laughs> with us. We are. We yeah, totally I mean, are. we're, you know, guys, I'm lucky you know, to be here. I'm loving it. Okay, okay. My man. I'm going to read this bit from, I'm going to get a couple bits because this Iowa part is, is, I think it's actually, it's, it's perfect art of darkness material, but it's also, mm-hmm. I think, important for the biography. So, okay. He's going to go, he's going to go teach for a semester at Iowa. Wait, wait, got, wait, wait, he's wait, wait, hang on, Princeton. hang on, hang on. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. He's on leave from Princeton. Yeah. And he's just found two and a half months after he finds Dylan Thomas dead. Yeah, dude, it's this is intense. I'm telling you, this is an intense. This is maybe our, our most okay. intense subject. He settled into his second floor apartment at 606 South Johnston and spent the rest of the evening drinking with some old friends from Princeton. By the time he got back to his apartment, he was very drunk. He managed to negotiate the stairs to his apartment. But as soon as he came out of the bathroom into the dark hallway, he fell down the stairs and crashed into a half glass door. His landlords, the Bristols, hearing the crash, came running and managed to get him back upstairs and into bed. The next morning, Berryman realized how badly shaken up he was. His teeth were chattering, his ankles were swollen, and his left wrist was broken. He had to be hospitalized. His first night in Iowa, 
he told his mother for sh- he had to be hospitalized. He told his mother for shock and exhaustion, but really so that he could get himself detoxified. <sighs> There's another little bit I want to read about his time at Iowa because there's like a three, these three quotes, I think, tell the kind of tell the whole story. Um, this is from Philip Levine, who is another great American poet, sort of of the next generation after Berryman or like the next half generation down after Berryman, a, a Detroit, a Detroit guy um, and, a, and a great poet. Um, this is a story. Philip Levine was studying with John Berryman when John Berryman was at Iowa. This is um, how, this is the words of Philip Levine. Um, We, that's me and John Berryman, were talking serious poetry stuff when I saw him shoot a hand up her skirt. That's Philip Levine's girlfriend. I said loudly, did I see what I think I saw? Franny shook her head. We went back to our talking and within a few minutes it happened again. I said to Franny, let's go. She agreed and we started to leave. I was pissed. John summoned me to his small kitchen. I expected him to apologize, but instead he told me that my woman wanted to stay there with him and wouldn't I be a good sport and just leave. I called him something and laughed at him, though I was deeply hurt. When we turned to leave, Franny yelled something and I started to turn back to John, but before I could, I was struck by the now empty scotch bottle, a glancing blow, but enough to put me down. He stamped on one of my hands, my left, and the next day the thumb felt broken. So he makes a move on his student's girl. It doesn't go well. And he just starts throwing whiskey bottles and beating up his beating up his student. Right. There's another thing. One more thing. So this is the end. This is the end of the Iowa stuff. Mm. Late that night, Berryman staggered back to his. Oh, he had been having this um, co-teaching with uh, Marguerite Young. um, And it didn't go very well. It fell into fractious arguments and yelling and shouting. And he gets drunk again. Uh, Late that night. So this is after all that argument. Late that night, Berryman staggered back to his apartment where, unable to find his key, he tried to force the door. When the landlord saw how drunk he was, he refused to let Berryman in. Upset and desperately needing to go to the bathroom, Berryman began shouting obscenities. But when the landlord refused to let him in, Berryman squatted on the front porch and defecated. Upset, the landlord's wife called the police and had Berryman locked up for disorderly conduct. On top of that, Berryman became outraged when the police began jeering and taunting him. When several police officers exposed themselves to him, Berryman began screaming that they were nothing but homosexual criminals. Still, there was nothing that he could do but endure his night behind bars. He found himself stripped of everything, even of his glasses, as he stared in the cold rage at his tormentors. At eight the following morning, he was released after paying two fines, $7.50 for disorderly conduct and another $5 for public intoxication. He spent the plan day planning to divide up his workshop. He would not be teaching with that woman again and then moved his books from his apartment to the university. He wanted to forget what had happened as just another of his bad dreams, but this time it was too late, and for by then the local papers had printed the story of his arrest. At 6 that evening, he had a call from Paul Engel. Dean Streist and Provost Davis would see him in the morning, and he was summarily dismissed from Iowa. Now this would... Go it's ahead. so fascinating because if anyone in the 21st century would engage in just... One activities, right. your career is over. Absolutely. That's the rest of your life. Absolutely. And yeah. It's like, yeah, well, now, you know. Yeah. So the next thing he does is he's like, in, in the, the now he, he can't get back to Princeton. Um, his buddy Alan Tate at the University of Minnesota is like, yeah, come on. We'll, we'll find, we'll get, we'll hook you up. You'll, you'll be fine. 
So, so after, you know, some sorting things out after this Iowa thing, he just goes to Minnesota and he becomes a professor and he's in Minnesota for like the next, you know, off and on, you know, guest lectures and, and, and speaking tours and things. But basically Minnesota is then home for the rest of his life. And Again, his father being from Stillwater, you know, you get the, we have to think, I think, about the poetry of his life, not just the poetry he wrote. His father, who he never really knew, who killed himself, we're gonna, and, and who, who, who he had the name of, but now he has the name of his father, this interloper. But his, this, his real father is from Stillwater. He never really knew the family very well from Stillwater. And now he's back there and sort of just by happenstance, right? It's very, there's something very, yeah, you can see why Berryman in, in Berryman's living this in a sort of a drunken haze. You can see where he would start seeing his life and dreams intermingling with each other, right? I, yeah. I think that move to Minnesota must have been a bit surreal for him. I, one thing he's working on at this time uh, is the uh, the Bradstreet work. So, homage to Mistress Bradstreet is his first attempt at a singular work of poetry. It's about fifty-seven pages long. It's a biography of the American poet Anne Bradstreet, who was the first American to be published widely in. Great Britain, she was part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony during the late um, 17th century. It's of its time. (laughs) It's very much the type of um, celebration of American literature by an American poet that you expect it to be. I'm not a huge fan of it. And, you know, I told you. I wasn't overly impressed by it. Yeah, but it was, it was considered a work of genius at the time, particularly that it was a book length piece of poetry that was so deeply researched. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of where the importance comes in okay. it. But it's not it's not sonically inventive like the dream songs are. And yeah. it's not the imagery is not deep. Mm-hmm. So Bradstreet is sort of, you know, his stepping stone. It gives him permission to write large. Right, right, right. And think about a think about a a big a big project, which the dream songs, it's all these individual pieces, but but he's I mean, there's something about just the fact that he's numbering them, that he's clearly and he spent he spent an ungodly amount of time putting them in order. Like at first I thought it was just he wrote Dream Song One and he's like, oh, that's number one, that's number two. But he apparently spent a lot of time fitting them together, the sequencing of them, which ones, you know, should be towards the beginning and which ones towards the end. And so, yeah, the Bradstreet probably was his effort to learn how to write a big poetry project. Yeah. And he considered the dream songs to be one poem, mm. which you know, an interesting sort of way of looking at it, divided up into all, and that's why so few of them actually have titles. Right. Are does title them their drop titles where the first line is 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 essentially the title. He yeah. thinks of it as a process that keeps just building upon itself and then becomes, you know, 640 separate poems. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So let me let's um yeah, we're, so we'll kind of we're we're going like two and a half hours here. So we're, we're gonna we're getting towards the end though. We're in third act. I think of Minnesota as Act Three. Um, so so we're kind of getting there. 
Now, between the time he starts Dream Songs and the time they end, it's like a 10 to 12 year process to, to write Dream Songs is my what I got out of this. Um, and a lot of things happen in his life. Um, he's divorced from Eileen. He marries Aunt, um, uh, he marries Anne Levine. He has a son. He divorces Anne Levine. He visits India and Japan. Um, you know, he, he lives a, a whole life here writing the dream songs. Um, his drinking and bitterness with uh, Anne after, you know, Eileen, his second, his second wife, devolves into to violence. There's a couple of instances of him, of him, you know, in an argument, slapping her across the face. And, of course, then feeling terrible about it and drinking away the regret about it and all of that, that whole cycle of things, right? He has started adopting the habit of drinking himself into the hospital, like almost on purpose, checking himself into the hospital just to get a break from things for a while, let other people take care of him and that sort of thing. Um, and this was a habit. I couldn't keep up with how many times he was in the hospital. It must have been dozens and sometimes for weeks at a time. Um, just to give us a sense of what his intake was, um, not to you know linger on it too much, but he was a guy who would down about a quart of whiskey a day um, he would smoke three to four packs of cigarettes a day. He was eventually, he was also on Thorazine, um, which is an antipsychotic. Um, he would be on Secanol. Um, he would also be on painkillers from time to time. So, so it wasn't just the booze though. The booze was certainly, you know, the, 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 the central, the central thing. Um, and the thing is, okay. So in 1958, when he starts going into the hospital, He's 44. He's been drinking pretty hard since his early 20s. And he wasn't a guy who took care of himself outside of that either, right? So it's starting to wear, they're starting to get wear and tear on his body. He's, he's falling and breaking stuff like he did in Iowa. He broke his wrist. At one point, his eardrums rupture or one of his eardrums rupture. I'm not even sure why that happened exactly. But he's, by the late 50s, he's physically kind he's physically starting to fall apart in a lot of ways um i want to read though now with that going on he's also writing the dream songs this amazing work of poetry and he's teaching remarkably well so i i, I paint the, the picture of him as a wreck but i want to paint the picture of him as this kind of phenomenal human being at the same time so let me read something about his teaching um from again from the paul mariani biography he taught his courses Sometimes inspired, sometimes drunk, at least once that spring, he delivered word for word a lecture on Don Quixote on a Wednesday. He had already given that Monday. His students sat there pained and uncomfortable, one of them to remember. Um, oh, see, now I'm reading the one about him him being a mess. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I meant to have a quote in here, and I, I apparently don't have the, the, the this, is, this is some of the teaching that didn't go so well. I, the point I wanted to make was, like, Phil Levine in Iowa he gets in a fight, he beats Phil Levine up. And then later on, Phil Levine's like, that was, he was the most important teacher I ever had, right? He could have these profound impacts on people. And he all, he, he almost had a, um, we didn't go into it too deep. He almost had like a quasi celebrity run as a Shakespeare lecturer, like would, would give lectures, you know, at campus, one of these kind of open things that you could go see. And they were apparently spellbinding these lectures that he gave on, on, on Shakespeare. Yeah. So let's do, so here's one, we got a couple of really good dream songs and, and Jason, maybe this is, we're coming into the sixties. Um, and we hit the death of two other people who he didn't, I don't think knew, know personally, but who were huge American figures. 
um, 61 and 62, we have Hemingway and then Faulkner. And we have a dream song about each, which I think are both intense, beautiful. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have Jason read, if he'd be so kind to share his gift with us, the Hemingway dream song and then the Faulkner dream song. So this is dream song. This Jason, if you'd be so kind, this is dream song 235, I believe is the Hemingway and then dream song 36. Although I'm going to mispronounce a word because I no one's perfect. So yeah, no, that's okay. I do it. I do it all the time. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. 35. Here's Henry shed for poor old Hemingway, Hemingway in despair, Hemingway at the end, the end of Hemingway, tears in a dining room in Indiana, and that was years ago, before his marriage, say. God to him, no worse luck send. Save us from shotguns and father's suicides. It all depends on who you're the father of if you want to kill yourself. A bad example, murder of oneself, the final death of love for which good mercy hides, a girl at the door, a few coppers pray, but to return, to return to Hemingway, that cruel and gifted man, mercy, my father, do not pull the trigger, or all my life I'll suffer from your anger, killing Uh. what you began. And then I'll go ahead and read the dream song number 36. One of the things that Berryman does is he puts on a accent of African-American English coming out of the minstrel tradition. And he has another character in the dream songs called Mr. Bones, which is based off of his friendship with Ralph Ellison that sort of has this pigeon English. So just want to let everybody know that. So here's dream song number 36. The high ones die, die, they die. The high ones die, die, they die. You look up and who's there? Easy, easy, Mr. Bones. I is on your side. I smell your grief. I sent my grief away. I cannot care forever. With them all a line and again I died and cried and I have to live. Now there you exaggerate, sir. You have to die. That is our pointed task, love and die. Yes, that makes sense. But what makes sense between them? What if I, rolling and babbling and braining, brood on why and just sit on the fence? I doubt you did or do. The choice is lost. It's fool's gold, but I go in for that. The boy and the bear looked at each other. Man, all is tossed and lost with groin wounds by the grand bull's cat, William Faulkner's wear. <laughs> Oof. Oof. Yeah. Soggy. So, yeah. I mean, you, so I think it's important. These two, I, I had never, before this research, I had never read these two poems, I, which you know, I think I've made clear. I wasn't a big, I wasn't that knowledgeable about Berryman. And then now I read these and it's like, it's fine. Yeah. So there's Faulkner and there's Hemingway, who are both big figures for me. And then this guy gives two of the, most intense like borderline psychedelic elegies for these these great writers and really you know puts 
puts himself by doing so almost like puts himself on their level or puts them on his level or something. They're, they're, they're amazing. Um, in, in the ability to, you know, the ability to tie in his father's suicide with Hemingway's suicide in such a profound way. I mean, that Hemingway poem just knocks me out every single time. Oh, I it's read so, it. it's so good. Yeah. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. And you can see, yeah. Oh. <laughs> now one thing, oh, it's, it's kind of marinating in those two poems for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting about this, I don't know if we talked about it and Jason, maybe you can say something to it. There is something in the John Berryman poems that I think would now be problematic if it were written now. We spoke on it when you were. Uh, oh, did you? Okay. The, 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 ra- to, the race stuff. Yeah, I had to take on the Mr. Bones persona in the Faulkner poems. So okay. I yeah. wanted to explain that. One of yeah. the things I said was, you know, part of it is based off of his friendship with Ralph Ellison, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually got, I think I got a thing from Ray, uh, Ralph Ellison, author of The Invisible Man and another great American writer. Um, I think I got it here that I can read that might actually be, if I remember right, might actually be Ralph Ellison's words. Um, oh, yeah. This is from Ralph Ellison. This is in the Paul Mariani biography. During the period he was writing dream songs, he's talking about Berryman, um, I grew to expect drunken phone calls usually he wanted my reaction to his uses of dialect my preference is for idiomatic rendering but i wasn't about to let the poetry of what he was saying be interrupted by the dictates of my ear for african-american speech besides watching him transform elements of the minstrel show into poetry was too fascinating fascinating too and amusing was my suspicion that berryman was casting me as a long distance mr interlocutor or was it Mr. Tambo, whose ad lib role was that of responding critically to his Mr. Bones and Huffy Henry? So he's uh, Ralph Ellison's like he's he's listening to this and he's like, okay, yeah, there might be an issue with this, but it's pretty brilliant. And then also, like, are you pulling me into Dream Song World? Like, am I, you know, like, am I getting pulled through the screen into into this project of yours? Um, it's pretty it's pretty fascinating. But I do I do think. You know, I, I do think it's interesting that Ralph Ellison was totally okay, seemingly, with John Berryman's project. Um, and I think that should give anybody who would maybe have issues with it a moment's hesitation. Like, well, maybe you should hear Ralph Ellison out and see what Ralph Ellison has to say about it. Um, maybe it still is a problem. I don't know. But um, I think it's wor- I think having Ellison's words on it is is super relevant. Um, I- I, I agree, Brad. I'm yeah. glad you were able to, to bring that in. That's really, yeah. that's really fascinating. Um, so kind of getting back to the bio stuff a little bit, um, just kind of keeping us conscious of where he's at. 1961, he meets a young, very young Kate Donahue, who would be his third wife. Now, remember, he has a his former wife, um, Anne, had given him a son, um, Paul, Um uh, and then they had divorced not long after after Paul was born. Um, so he meets Kate Donahue in 1961. They eventually marry. Um, she gives Paul, uh, sorry, she gives Berryman a daughter. Um, he does not stop drinking. I know there's a way that this story could go where he sees the light um, and we're not 
gonna quite get there <laughs> so but five, we'll, we'll 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 get somewhere we're gonna land this um you know through this time he's he's doing i i was wanting to part of me wanted to tell the ins and outs of this and then it was like well i don't know that i want to revel in this guy's m- misery but we'll say that while dream songs is happening while he's writing dream songs he's drinking constantly He's falling down. He's getting into arguments. He's getting into arguments with friends. He's getting, uh, you know, he's teaching some of his classes drunk. Um, at a certain point, almost all of his public appearances, he's intoxicated. Um, I think if you search YouTube and just for John Berryman reading, which I highly recommend, he is an electrifying reader. Um, I, I honestly, maybe. If someone were to say he was the best spoken poet, I wouldn't disagree. Um, he's certainly in the in the running, um, but almost always intoxicated. And you can tell, particularly in the banter, he will have you know he will have very slurred banter, very sort of like both self-deprecating and megalomaniacal at the same time a little bit. There's almost something sinister about it sometimes. Um, it's very. He's a very. It, it, and because of that, it's kind of captivating. I mean, there's a little bit of like, you feel like there's some darkness there because clearly he's, he's, he's kind of grinding himself into something. But, but as a character, I mean, I think of writing a film or something like John Berryman is an amazing, an amazing on-screen character. I don't know who you'd get to play him, but um, it could be quite interesting. Um, so dream songs does eventually come out um 65 i think i for some reason i should i would think i would have written that here but i didn't um uh now here's the thing dream songs comes out it's this project he's been working on forever he knows he did it like he he he's he's you know he's got these delusions of grandeur and he's been writing dream songs and he knows it's incredible bits and pieces of it have come out over time as these things do published in journals and p in there they've been very very well received but literally the weekend of its publication he is in minneapolis he gets blackout drunk wakes up in the hospital fully clothed with no memory of what happened um and then dream songs comes out on monday um, you know, too broad a claim to win him the Pulitzer. Um, I, th- I think maybe he'd already won a Guggenheim at this time, but, but cementing his legacy as, you know, one of, as he's right up there with Robert Lowell, he's right up there with Robert Frost, to be honest, you know, he's, he's in, you know, he's, he's up there with Walt Whitman. Now he, he can be, he can be talked about in this, the, these same tones. Um, and, you know, still on the war path against himself all this time um so kind of trying to get us and kind of wind down and, and of course we're gonna we're gonna skip stuff i, I could have done a six-hour episode on john Perryman. <laughs> so i literally fought i fought to figure out exactly what should go on this page and now i'm fighting to figure out exactly you know what should be and shouldn't be talked about but some other things that happen um in the late 60s his friends start dying even more. Delmore Schwartz dies. Blackmer dies. T.S. Eliot, who he knew personally, dies. Um, Jarrell dies. Uh, you know, he gets outlived by some of these folks. And T.S. Eliot is quite old. Um, but 
even still, you know, he's a guy, he's, he's a guy that Berryman came to know, you know, he's a nowhere, a kid from nowhere, Oklahoma, who is now, what, what are you talking about? Like, like, I'm just like saying and, that, and that Berryman at some point starts to watch everybody around him drop like flies. Okay. So, so he goes to Dublin, he gets a major life spread on him. They come and do like a, a, like a, a full, a feature length profile on him. It has one of awesome. the very best author, my favorite author photo, um, maybe of all time. He's, he's standing by the, he's standing by like the seawall and his beard is all getting blown by the wind. And he's clearly in the midst of like making the most profound point you've ever heard. Um, and <laughs> While he's in Dublin, he gets invited to go to the White House for dinner, but he's, you know, he clearly can't. He's in Dublin. So he's reached this. He's re he's he's literally, you know, feature length in, in the magazine that everybody's every house has on, on the on the coffee table. Um, wins the Pulitzer, invited to White House dinners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the sort of the drinking thing never kind of quite goes away. Um, I want to give a. Uh, 443. I've got a, a poem that he wrote about alcohol. Okay. So just to give you what his, to hopefully get some sense of what his relationship was. So um, for oh, wrong page 446. This is again from the Paul Mariani biography. I'm not sure if this was even actually published, but maybe it was. Um, this is something he wrote about alcohol. An eye opener, a nightcap. So it goes one for the road, eight to pass out. So it goes. So it goes. They say if the Harvard Provision Company shut down, there would be no more excellent teaching in that town. Full professors would come to blows. Too much can hardly be made of the eccentric view that sees liquor in quantity as a sedative and for poets dissociative. I won't linger over that. That's up to you. Like the three kinds of marijuana I was recently offered in Illinois, like a bird of passage, bard of passage. Oh, well, I somehow refused them all and got home safe. Also, a sexy fat woman was offered me, whom I likewise I refused. I, with my intent to be true beyond belief, which is merely human. So that was where I think that was maybe that's where he got the closest to being a beatnik, I think, is that poem. <laughs> he never quite was. 1970, he puts out the book Love and Fame, which I think is pretty well regarded as to not, not being his best book. Um, I believe Robert Lowell had uh, had. Uh, didn't necessarily speak incredibly highly of it or, or some of his other peers maybe were the same. And yet 1971 comes and uh, Berryman has a little bit of a, it, it was a combination of things, his health getting worse and worse and worse uh, and his relationship with Kate going off the rails and her giving him a series of ultimatums. Um, he gets into AA after many, many hospitalizations, like when he was hospitalized in Ireland, um, at the same at the same mental asylum that he had been hospitalized briefly while he was um, apparently while he was over there uh, visiting Yates, it must have been. Um, and then as soon as he gets back to the United States from Dublin, he's in the hospital for a stretch. So so he's in and out of these hospitals and he, he uh, enters into AA and then he has some success with this. He starts, in fact, recovers to the point where he's starting to write a novel called Recovery, you know, and he's he's being uh, he's supporting other guys who are are trying to stay sober and he's making relationships with people in AA. He's actually doing for a while pretty well with it. Now, how do we say this? <laughs> it's it's brief. It lasts about six months. Um, he gets some good poetry out of it. Um, 
he gets the book Delusions, which I think was published uh, posthumously, but which was nearing completion upon his death. He writes this at this time. Recovery, they eventually put out too, but my take is that he didn't hadn't actually finished it. Um, wow. Yeah. Do, yeah. So did they did they like publish it as unfinished or did somebody try to finish it? Yeah, it's yeah. no, it's published as unfinished. And it's also a work of fiction, which, of course, sets it sort of, you know, at a different angle than everything else that he's done. So they just left it as yeah. it yeah. yeah, that would be for for the hardcore Berryman people, I think, probably. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, the Berryman completists, you got to read everything. Um so he manages, he does manage to stay sober for six months. Um, and then I'm gonna, I got a couple things that I want to read that I think will help us understand why he couldn't stay sober. Maybe the, the uh, a further understand if we don't kind of get it already, right? We have these, we have all these compounding factors. We have his father killing himself when he's quite young. We have this relationship with his mother that had some weird Oedipal overtones and was very strange. We had, you know, this sexual frustration. We had this ambition for greatness, which he managed to actually pull off and yet somehow didn't quite wasn't quite enough. And maybe there's a certain emptiness where you have this dream of something happening. You you tie all of your meaning to it and then it happens and you're like, well, it's pretty great, but it's not it didn't actually somehow satisfy the thing I wanted it to be right. You get there and it's, it's awesome. And then it's over. <laughs> and then you're kind of like, and now what, and especially the thing I thought about with dream songs, it's like you write something like dream songs and it's, it's a little bit like any writer who's written some great piece of work. It's like you do it and then you're like, well, now what do I do? Right. You know, I can't just do the same thing I did before. I don't know if I got enough life and energy in me to like recreate the wheel again. Like, what do we, what do we do now? Yeah. So, um, I'm going to read a couple things and one of them very strongly relates to that point. Um, so this is something that was said by, um, his friend, Ralph Ross. We came to see him during, while he was sober, he came to see Berryman while Berryman was sober. This is from Rolf Ross. He was friendly and courteous as if we were a new acquaintance and afraid to drink because he said it would kill him and he wanted to live. There was no real warmth shown to us, though, or anyone. No excitement of mind, no ardor. I concluded that the only John uh, one could love was a John with two or three drinks in him. No more and no less. And such a John could not exist. So you've got that that's going on he's he's sober and it's it's he <laughs> he's no fun anymore he's not exciting anymore he's not enthusiastic he's not the john berryman that 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 he, he's not the john berryman that would freak out at you at a bar and storm off but he also wasn't the john berryman that might you know tell a great story or string together a, a series of insights or talk to you about shakespeare for 45 minutes you know with dazzling brilliance he wasn't either of those things now um and i think that has to be difficult for anybody um him and his friends now in um december of 1971 he has a dream okay and and, and dream songs I, I i love dreams I, there was a, some there's some guff in the new york times the other day about a book critic said that writers shouldn't write about dreams and i just thought what are you talking about it's all we've ever it's all we've ever written about what do you mean we can't write about dreams but he has this dream, and I'm just going to read the description of it. Six days later, he recorded another nightmare. 
This is December 1971. He was in a museum standing in front of a prehistoric statue of a buffalo when he saw a girl come over and touch it. As he went to touch the buffalo's hump, he noticed the couple in the next room watching him and found himself explaining that he'd already seen, quote, a young artist touching it. Then he put his hands out to touch the hump and suddenly it was shooting a, quote, electric thrill through his body. He stood amazed as if inspired by old magic. When he woke up, he knew that what he touched in his dream was something of the old power. He was afraid now was gone forever. Okay. Um, that's um, middle of December, 1971. And then a little bit of time goes on. He goes to a New Year's Eve party. He writes some friends. And then on January 5th of 1972, he buys himself a bottle of whiskey and drinks half of it. Kate was too exhausted to even be disappointed. Um, and then we're just going to read, and then we're going to talk for a little bit, but we're going to read um, this. Okay, he's been sober for six months and finally fell off the rails. He'd had that dream about losing his old power. His last book of poems, Love and Fame, wasn't as well received as all of his other of his previous work. A lot of his friends are gone. Sober life is no fun. Family life is no fun. His mother was living with him for a while. He'd never really learned how to cohabitate with anybody. Um, and then he falls off the wagon again. Now, Friday morning, this is again from the biography, January 7th, 1972. After another restless night, Berryman told Kate that he was going to his office to put his things in order. Kate sent Martha, their daughter, uh, to school, then bundled up Sarah to do the shopping. You won't have to worry about me anymore. He told her as she went out, but she'd heard that one before too. At half past eight, he put on his coat and scarf and walked down to University Avenue. There he caught the shuttle bus heading west toward campus. He passed the stores along the avenue, then got off with the morning crowd at Ford Hall. But instead of going to his office, he walked out onto the upper level of the Washington Avenue bridge. It was bitterly cold, but rather than use the glass enclosed walkway, he began walking along the north side of the bridge toward the West Bank campus. Three quarters of the way across, he stopped and stared down. A hundred feet below and to his right rode the river, narrow, gray, and half frozen. In front of him were the snow-covered coal storage docks and directly below the winter trees and a slight knoll rising like a grave. So it was still there, waiting. He climbed onto the chest-high metal railing and balanced himself. Several students inside the walkway stopped what they were doing when they saw him and stared in disbelief. He made a gesture as if waving, but he did not look back. From this, from this height, he must have figured the blade did seem redundant after all. Then he tilted out and let go. Three seconds later, his body exploded against the knoll, recoiled from the earth, then rolled gently down the incline. The campus police were first to arrive and found a package of Terrytons, his brand of cigarettes, some change, and a blank, chain, and a blank check with the name Berryman on it. Inside the left temple of his shattered horn-rimmed glasses, they found the name a second time. An ambulance took the body to the Hennepin County morgue where Berryman was officially pronounced dead. And so that was it. 1972, just under as 58 years old, 57 years old. Um, great American poet came to his end there basically on the campus of university or quite near the campus of uh, university of Minnesota in the middle of winter. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, that's the life of John Berryman. Um, 
<laughs> uh, Jason, what what can we say? I mean, you're you're in in the academic world. What can we say about what people say about Berryman now? What is his legacy in the academic world? It's really complicated. You um, did an excellent job sort of saying how you can feel that he exists within MFA programs and he does and sort of the lineage and and the people that he taught and, and other great poets that come from his work. There's, there's a lot of um, overlap there with other people, but you know, 21st century has not been kind to someone like John Berryman. Um, he was a bad boy who did bad things and then sort of also sort of put himself at risk by sort of racializing his poetry. And I'm glad that we talked about that because there's not a lot of scholarship that's being done on Berryman right now. There's not a lot of discussion. It's sort of, you know, he's a poet's poet. Right. Which is, is, is what people need to understand. Um, you know, the, I don't know if you know the rock group from Minneapolis, um, the Hold Steady, but they're doing yeah. more to perpetuate John Berryman's memory than a lot of English departments because mm -hmm. their lead singer, Craig Finn, is obsessed with John Berryman oh, okay. and wrote two or three songs about them. So, like, Berryman exists in popular culture, but in a very sort of interesting way, not necessarily as respected as you would expect someone of his caliber to be um, in academics, but people who love words and love the experience of hearing words and, and love, you know, this, the type of, of life on the edge that he, that he had, those people are still sort of responding to his work. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a really complicated, um, which is one of the reasons, to be honest, why I brought this to you and Kevin as a potential subject, because he's so ripe for, he's the perfect art of darkness. Oh yeah, he, he is. No, I was about 50 pages into the biography. And I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is exactly the kind of person that we should be yeah. covering. And I'm so glad I, I, I got a, opportunity to, to learn so much about him i mean uh i mean the work is fascinating but he's a he's a i think an important figure to understand the work of and the life of and the relationships he had to understand american literature the history of american literature both you know what happened and who are the players but the, but the the aesthetic and artistic direction of it um I felt like I, I felt like I got a much by doing this research. I, I, I started to understand the role of academia in the, in the history of, uh, of, you know, American literature. Um, and, and certainly a lot of these other figures that were around him. Um, and it's been fun. I haven't got a chance to read, um, the poetry uh, of his peers as much, but like, I, so this week leading up to this episode, I was tweeting every day. I was tweeting a quick bio of an individual poet that Berryman knew. And and then I would pick a poem to associate with that. So that was cool. So I would each one of them I would read like you know a handful at least to kind of pick the one that I wanted to share. And so I had this great in the last like week or two. I've had this great like uh, unfortunately poetry American poetry kind of one hundred and one that I 
I, I never got, even though, you know, I got an English degree and an MFA. I never, I never quite got it. I read, you know, some of the other names you're supposed to read, but it kind of never got around to these, the, these men and women. And so, um, Berryman is important sort of cipher for that purposes purpose too. I think you can, you can understand all of American literature if you understand him well enough. And, and that's pretty exciting. I think that that's right. I think yeah. that that I think that's an excellent observation. Yeah. So we went we went pretty long here, but I think we did the darn thing. So, Jason, we're and and we're going to come back to the after dark. We're going to talk about the crime that Martha Little, John Berryman's mother, may or may not have committed. Um, but so we'll we'll take a few minute break and then we'll come we'll come back. But. But Jason, thank you so much for doing. Thank you for bringing this to us, and thank you for sharing your time and your wonderful reading and your insights. You know, this is an episode wouldn't have worked without you. Um, where can people find you if you want them uh, to find you? <laughs> no, people can find me. I okay. have no problem. Um, my name backwards: Gallagher Jason on Instagram. Follow me. Mm-hmm. I post poetry. I post um, popular music. It's cool. it's. it's People can friend me on Facebook if they find me. It's fine. I have no problem. With okay, that. good, good. I just yeah. had to take a. I just had to take a break from the bird side. That's oh all. yeah, no, it'll rot your brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure, absolutely. Okay, so, um, so great. Thank you so much. Um, people will find you. We'll we'll post some um, links to that to those links in the show notes as well. Um, and uh, yeah, let's uh, we'll we'll think about um another subject for you to come back on and do. We I appreciate- are, yeah, I no. appreciate it, guys. This, this was a blast. Yeah. I had I had a great time. I'm glad I was oh. able to share this. Oh, I'm I'm no, I'm so glad you came out. We're booked pretty we're booked for a while, but we will we will do it. We will do it. Um uh so yeah, so so that's it, folks. Um, you know, find us on Twitter. We are on the bird site because we uh we have thrown sanity to the wind. Uh art of at art of dark pod website is art of dark art of dark uh, subscribe to the Patreon, patreon.com slash art of dark pod. Um, and you know, f- listen to the, listen to the after dark and we'll be back with a new episode gosh, soon. I think the next person we're doing, that's a Kevin episode. I think we're doing Robert Bolan, Roberto Bolaño, which oh, should be awesome. Uh, 2666 is a masterpiece. Uh, I hope to talk about that and everything else about Robert, Robert Bolaño. Um, yeah. So that's it. Yeah, thanks. All right, cool. Thank you.